I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche There's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for ghosts to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Hello and welcome to JK Plus One I am your host, Jonathan Kinchin I am not back with you from the Brooklyn Bunker I am not your host, Peter Thomas Fornatel, although he has been behaving much more properly lately. He he got a little bit wonky on us for a while there. I think that the pandemic, the COVID, the lockdown was, was getting to him a little bit. He is acting slightly more appropriate. Look, I, I felt great about the intro that I recorded two minutes ago until I rem, uh, was reminded that I saw no waveform, which is the squiggly lines on the program. Uh, to tell me that it was actually recording. I had my my uh, microphone on mute. But look, this wouldn't be an In The Money Media podcast without JK being locked on mute because I'm an idiot, I guess. So look, um, I don't even remember what I said the first time. I said that, uh, oh, I said that I was very appreciative of everyone's support for the first four episodes. Look, if you haven't listened to them yet, Make sure you go back and check them out. They're they're great. Gary Stevens, Michael McCarthy. Um, uh, then we had uh, we went to Duke Matisse, a professional horse player. Then we went to Richie Migliori, the MIG. Uh, phenomenal stories. Uh, probably the best story uh, of all of the podcasts. No offense to anyone else, but that that story about that he told about uh, the ashes and them getting him in his mouth. I mean, that's got to be my biggest nightmare in the history of the world. And then my fifth guest is is someone I'm very excited to have on as well and, and someone that uh, I think you guys will enjoy listening to. A uh, little housekeeping. We don't usually do – we don't ask you guys for a lot on this network, but I will ask you for this right now. We need you to subscribe. Go to your uh, Apple podcast thing or whatever. Just hit the subscribe button. Um, if you have time and you're bored, you're locked in your house. You got nothing else to do, by the way. If you have a video game to play, holler at me. I'll beat you in it. If you don't, do a comment, write a little thing, make fun of me, make fun of Pete, but make sure you give five stars. But uh, subscribe, yeah. In the Money Media, it's the little black logo with the with the hair and the hat. The green logo in the Players Podcast, hair and the hat. Matt Bernier's show, Redboard Rewind. I'm excited, man. I'm excited. We're a couple of days away from Churchill Downs. I'm excited about that. The fact that we're doing Churchill Downs uh, on Fox is is exciting. And the fact that I'm so excited about it is what inspired me to bring our guests, uh, our guest on the show today. And and the thing about it is, is that uh, this guest is a friend of mine. He's a, he's a guy that uh, I've been fortunate enough to know probably since 2016. Uh, we'll talk about that at the top of the show, how we, how we met. Great storyteller. Very interesting part of the game. I'm talking about none other than the man who's called the last five Kentucky Derbies, and he's done it very well. My good friend Travis Stone is going to join us today. And and look, Travis is is uh, he's got a great perspective on the game. He's a better. He's worked uh, in all facets, not all facets, but a lot of facets of the game. He uh, is a fan, uh, intimate fan of the game, as as I know that you guys are, and and I am as well. And so. I was very happy to have him on to tell some stories and and to give us the uh, the behind the scenes on on what it's like to a certain extent for race calling. Um, we've heard interviews with race callers. We've seen interviews with Tom Durkin and Trevor Denman and Larry Colmus and uh, and and Frank Miramati and and the list goes on. But 
uh, I, I tried to my hardest to to give some perspective to some of the behind the scenes. Travis talks about one of his most embarrassing calls ever, which is actually hilarious to me. But uh, I understand why it was so frustrating to him. But uh, we're very happy to have Travis on uh, to talk about all things racing, not only uh, his profession that he's chosen and he's done so well. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for Churchill. I'm excited to hear him. I think this Churchill meet is going to be an absolute war with the guys that we have coming in. And, uh, you know, with Ricardo Santana, obviously, he's going to be there with what he just came off of at, at Oakland Park, winning his seventh title in a row there. And then we're going to have Johnny and, and, and Javier and Manny, and the Ortiz brothers and Joel and, uh, and then the normal other guys, you know, Brian Hernandez and, and, and Corey Lannery. We're going to have big trainers. We're going to have Chad. I've, I've heard singing, uh, sending a string. We're going to have two-year-olds. We're going to have turf. We're going to have sprints. We're going to have long. I mean, I think it's going to be an absolute battle at Churchill and I'm looking forward to it as a betting opportunity and also as a fan. So, uh, I'm at five minutes on this introduction, and I should probably shut up and introduce my good friend in the voice of the Kentucky Derby, Travis Stone. I, I like to go by, I, I call you T dollar sign. That's what you're saved at in my phone. But uh, what's going on, man? Not much. You're in my phone as Jonathan Pablo Kinchin. I don't really remember the story about that, but I remember laughing about it when we talked about it. But uh, no, all's going well. How are you? My brother, my brother tried to convince my parents to name me Pablo, and <laughs> I remember he had now. like he had like a full like a full pitch that he was like, "Look, it, here's what we're gonna do. We call him Pablo. He lives in Texas. This is great, you know. He had this whole thing, and so uh, I think I told you that that story, and so I'm sure you saved me as that. So, That's um, great. you know, it's it's not. It's not, I've heard a lot of horror stories about blind dates and I've never really actually, well, I've been on one. I've never been on like a, like a serious blind date. The only blind date I've ever been on and I considered a successful one was the blind date that you and I had when we were meeting at Keeneland, we were meeting our friend, Nick Tamaro. Uh, you had got in early. I had got in early. Nick wasn't getting there till late. So Nick coordinated you to scoop me up from the airport and for us to go to Keeneland together. And, and we hung out for the first time in real life. Uh, at Keeneland. And then we went to uh, Village Idiot, which I don't know if you know this or not, but it, it closed down. I did hear that. That was sad. That was sad. I know. I love that place, man. So that was my, actually my, that was the first day I ever walked in to Keeneland. So that was, uh, it was uh, memorable for lots of different reasons. <laughs> I, I, I do remember picking you up at the airport and I remember some of the other adventures throughout the day. Um, but I mean, Keeneland, I, I remember all of our good times at Keeneland. We have them every year, you know, and, uh, I'm sort of sad we didn't get to experience anything this spring, but hopefully we're back in the fall and going forward too. But yeah, and no, I remember those, those, those were good times. God, man, I, it's, you know, through all this stuff, like there's been a couple of things that have really kind of annoyed me and got to me. Um, one of them being Keeneland and then I'm sure the other one, and I feel silly telling you that it got to me and annoyed me, but this would have been my 12th consecutive Kentucky Derby. It would have been your fifth call, right? Sixth. Sixth. You're, yeah, my sixth one. Yeah, I hear you there. I, you know, it was just when this all went down in March, it, it happened so fast. I remember laying on my bed and hearing that the NBA was suspending its season. And I figured at that moment there was 0% chance the Derby was going to happen. I was hopeful, but... And, you know, with each passing day, you realized it wasn't going to. And then by the time we rolled into this sort of social distance type thing, um, I got used to being home alone and just doing my thing. And and I sort of 
it just accepted the fact that this was all not going to happen the way it was supposed to. And it was kind of weird. People were texting me Derby Day. Oh, it must feel weird. Must feel weird. And I was like, to be honest with you, this feels like the last 45 days of my life. I got up and did the same thing I do every morning. And now I just happen to be outside because it's nice out. Um, but yeah, and it's, it's, it's been a bummer. I, I missed Keeneland. I used to love going to Keeneland. I, I'm saying like uh, it's never going to happen again, but I love going to Keeneland in the spring. The sun is out. It's warming up. There's derby horses, and it, this is this has been a bummer. No two ways about it. I've continuously kind of told myself that, like you know, the light at the end of my tunnel of all of this is Saratoga. Now, obviously, we you know we don't know for sure what that's actually going to look like, and and you know, I you know, speculation here and there, and no one really knows. Um, I think that there's probably a lean, unfortunately, and it's probably a, the lean is spectatorless, but I'm still excited just to get up there. Um, and just, even if I'm just hanging out, uh, it'll make me feel better than what's happening now. Are you going to go regardless or, uh, is it going to, is it going to be de- uh, dependent on whether or not they're having fans or not? I'll probably go up just cause that's where my family is. So I'll go up to say hello to them. Haven't seen them in a while. Um, and but, you know, never say never. I mean, who knows, right? I think we're all sort of living day to day. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit optimistic that the corner is going to get turned sooner rather than later. And and I'm hopeful that that's what happens. Um, but again, depends on what you read and where you read it and uh, what time of day it is because things seems to change all the time. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, obviously, if I go up there, I wouldn't be going to the track, but I'd be going up there to see the family anyway. Uh, you know, we'll see how that shakes out in terms of the Derby too, with the Derby first Saturday in September, which means August is probably going to be a little bit more busy around here. So, you know, less time to get up there. Um, yeah, absolutely. and all sorts of possible things could happen between now and then. So I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to have for dinner, you know, much less, uh, <laughs> what we're no, going to do in a couple of months. I, I tweeted the other day, uh, you know, it's obviously it's not the same now, but uh, 80 days from the day I tweeted it was, is, you know, scheduled Saratoga opening. And I looked 80 days back just to see where we were. And I, it was literally a day where we were sitting in a ballroom. You weren't, but we were sitting in a ballroom with 600 people in Vegas for the NHC, which seems like an eternity ago based on uh, the amount of human interaction I've had since then. So, uh, yeah, you know what? Hopefully it, it all works itself out. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll we'll be a little bit more appreciative for the times we do get to run around after uh, after going through all of this. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. So obviously, through a lot of your interviews, you've talked about your your start as a race caller, which I think a lot of people find is fascinating because it's such a complicated thing that most it's one of those jobs where a lot of people have jobs where people say, "I could do that. I could do that. That's easy. I could do that." I don't think really too many people. Oh, think that they could do your job. Um, I know you, you probably didn't hear it, but I've, I've done these horse player happy hours the last couple of weeks. And uh, we've asked people to donate a hundred bucks to the TRF. And if they did that, I would call a race. So I've called two races. Now I called one at, uh, at, uh, <laughs> at do it Gulfstream. So you'll be very proud if, if you hear, I think I actually maybe gave you a, a, a name call on one of them, I think, but <laughs> I think I said, I think I said, Travis, I think I said, something I'm coming for your job or something, but um, the, my favorite story of the, of your start was the letters that you sent out and, and the letters that you received back, but in particular one letter. Yeah. You know, my dad, um, was a big letter writer and 
I remember growing up, he would tell stories about, I wrote a letter when this happened. I wrote a letter when that happened. I wrote a letter telling him I didn't approve of this. Not that my dad was one of those sort of uh, sociopaths. He's not. But um, I realized around 11 years old that I wanted to call races. And um, I decided to write a letter to Tom Durkin. And it helped that I had had some other, quote, success writing letters. I remember writing letters to racetracks, just asking them for information about their biggest race. Um, And it was so cool to get back like media guides or uh, the Breeders' Cup sent me a program from the Gulfstream Park 1992 Breeders' Cup, as an example. Um, So I had, you know, felt good about that. And I was like, I'm going to write a letter to Tom Durkin. And I said, I want to be a race caller. I don't remember the specifics of the letter, but it basically was just, you know, tell me what to do. Do you have any advice? Yada, yada. A couple months later, he wrote me back. Um, I still have that letter. It's it's in my house in Louisiana um, with all my other sort of memorabilia, if you will. But uh, he wrote me back and and I can still picture the letter in my mind. He had wait a couple of weeks because he had gone to Europe to call. I think the Irish Derby that he went to call. Um, but he had some great thoughts. He says, practice hard, go to school, do your work, um, work on memorization um, just some great advice. And for someone who was 11 or 12 years old, that was, that was money to me. And, uh, I knew that's, that was it. I was, I was going to become a race car at that point. And, um, it sort of all happened right around there. I remember waking up one Christmas morning and I have a sister who is a year younger than me. And so we're, we're downstairs opening gifts. And I remember opening up a box and in the little corner of like the side of the box was a picture of a horse race, which was awesome. And I opened up the rest of it and it was my first pair of binoculars um, I got for Christmas one year. I mean, I'm young and this is my parents. Had, we had just moved into my parents' house. They built like 90, 91. So I'm probably around the, around the same time I wrote Tom that letter. And uh, so then all of a sudden that summer, walking into Saratoga, binoculars around the neck, I'm calling the races sitting next to my dad in the grandstand. Uh, who, I'm sure they sounded absolutely horrendous, but uh, nonetheless, I was doing it. And that's sort of where it all really began to percolate. You mentioned binoculars and, and obviously it's a, it's a integral part of your job to be able to see what's going on. I, I've had the pleasure of, of playing with your binoculars you have now. Uh, tell us a little bit about those. How much were those binoculars and what the heck is the science behind them? And what do they do? Yeah. People have binocular envy when they, uh, when they come to the booth. Um, so in race calling, you want to be able to see the horses as close and as clear as possible, but you also want to be able to balance your perspective a little bit. You know, if you had a telescope, you could probably look at, you know, the jockey's goggles real close, but then you have you have no idea of what's happening around them. So you have to balance how close you want to be in terms of zoom. The challenge, though, is that with higher zoom binoculars, there are natural hand tremors that a human has uh, in day-to-day life that makes it hard to hold them steady. And then much less when you're calling a race and then, you know, add another magnitude to it when you're calling a race like the Derby. So you get a lot of jiggle. Well, Canon has these image stabilizing binoculars that take two batteries. You put them in there, you click the button and you hear a snap. And basically the image stabilizer comes into play and for lack of a better word, floats the image. It sort of holds it steady. And so you can look through those binoculars and you can shake a little bit and you don't even notice it through the binoculars. Um, they're 15 powered. I can see quite a bit with them. Uh, I've called races where going into the clubhouse, turning, going down the backstretch. I've seen horseshoes fly through the air, um, but they're not so powerful that you can't pick up on a gap of three to four lengths between horses. 
So it's about finding that right balance. And, uh, and they're nice. I mean, they were when I, the first pair I bought was a gift from my parents. I'd gotten the job in Louisiana. And so part of the gift for moving down there was my first pair of these binoculars. I want to say it was like 12 or 1400. Um, and then I got a new pair the week before my first derby cause God forbid. And, uh, and then I, I did recently get a third pair, um, not too long ago, just as a backup. But, uh, but yeah, that's the story of the binoculars. They're awesome. I mean, the, and they can be a little bit uh, leery when you know they're loading into the gate and you just notice that they feel blurry or it's just not quite right. And then in the middle of the race, you hear them snap off because the batteries are dying. So it, you got to keep on top of uh, battery replacement. I've had that happen in the middle of some races before. That was no fun. Um, but I'm also very fast at replacing the batteries while they're loading. Uh, I've done that before. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it can be a challenge, but no, they're great. Uh, they would be hard to call races without them. Now you mentioned Tom Durkin and um, another great story that I'd love for everyone to hear is, and it's a good transition into obviously the, the biggest part of your job, which is calling the Kentucky Derby in 2015, you were going to be making your first call in the, in the Derby. And it happened to be the one that American Pharaoh uh, won in a, in a call that might I add you absolutely crushed. Oh, um, yeah. My, my favorite line is, is uh, frosted heating up. Um, well, an American Pharaoh rules the Derby, but, but frosted heated up, heating up was, was, was one of your best. Um, at, that week you got an important phone call from someone you've mentioned on this call, uh, on, on this conversation already. What, what was that phone call like? Obviously some of it was private. It's an important thing to you and as a, as a mentor, but, uh, just kind of share with everyone what it was like to get that call that week. Yeah. So I had, um, never been to the Derby before. And here I was going to call the Derby and it was going to be the first Derby that I was going to attend. So I was excited and, and on edge and, and thrilled all at the same time. Um, you know, sort of like your lifelong dream is to call a race like that. But at the same time, I'm, I'm a very like analytical person and enjoy learning and and like to find, find frameworks and structures around things, um, particularly things I'm interested in, such as race calling. And so I had reached out to Tom and I said, Hey, you know, one of these days, a few weeks prior, you know, up, up in the upcoming weeks, I'd love to sort of pick your brain a little bit on, on calling the Derby. And he was like, absolutely call me anytime. And I had gone to Churchill that week. Um, I think the week before the Derby to do some voiceovers of all the major contenders for some in-house uh, audio. And, and I shot him a text and said, Hey, if you're around, um, I'd love to chat. And he, shot me a note back. He goes, this is perfect. I'm driving home from Florida. Call me whenever. So I sat down in the booth at Churchill and I grabbed a notepad um, or even just blank sheets of paper. I can't remember. Gave him a call. And I think we're on the phone for a good 90 minutes, two hours. And, and he was awesome. He just gave me all sorts of great advice on how to call the Derby um, and stuff that I would never have known about had he not told me, and I'll give you some examples of, of some. So he said the, the, the most important part is you get them out of the gate. So the gates open and the horses start and, you know, their first few strides, you identify a couple of horses showing some early speed. You keep an eye on who obviously is the big favorite American Pharaoh that year and, and what they're doing, make sure nothing happens to them, make sure nobody stumbles, uh, what have you. And they'll get to about the eighth pole. So a furlong into the race, and then you reset have a transition phrase and then start calling what I call the rundown, which is the horse and their position, horse position, horse position, horse position. 
And he said to me, and, and, he, and he was right, and I agreed with this. He goes, I think it's important that you give the horse's position, especially in a 20-horse field, because people need context. And I said, absolutely. I said, that's my one of my big goals for this first derby is to make sure I give the position of all these horses. And he says, so you're going to start it. And he goes, you're going to announce the first couple of horses. You know, uh, this horse is first. That horse is second. This horse is wide while third. This horse is tucked in fourth. And he goes, you get through the first few of them, and they'll go right below you at the finish line and move into the clubhouse turn, and then you'll get a few more out. And he goes, with about seven furlongs to go, you'll get about 12 of them out. He goes, and then you're going to call a couple of more. And he goes, the back of your mind is going to start saying, this is taking too long. This is taking too long. And he said, ignore it. Keep going. And he goes, you're going to get to the 14th, the 15th, and the 16th horse. He goes, then you're really going to start to panic. He says, keep going. He says, then you're going to get to the 17th, the 18th, the 19th. And, and you're really going to feel like this is, this is, I've ruined it. It's over. Uh, there's no way I can recover. You're going to get to the 20th horse. He goes, you're going to look up and there's going to be five furlongs to go. You get the half mile time and then you call the race from there. And uh, that was his first piece of advice. And so I can remember very specifically on the clubhouse turn of that first derby, the feeling of this is taking too long. And I said to myself, keep going. And I did. And damn it, he was right. You get to that last horse, you look up, you get the half mile time, and there's five furlongs to go. And he said, you just call the horse race from there. And that was oh so true. And if you if you go back and watch basically all of his derbies, all of my derbies, they're all structured the same way. You sort of flip to that rundown at about the eighth pole with a transitionary phrase, and you go through the rundown until they reach about five furlongs out, at which point you can give the half mile time. And he, that was the second piece of advice. The half mile point, you have to have a fraction or fractions in mind that represent the, basically the tipping point of, of how the race will shake out from there. For example, if it's in the 48s or 49s or even slower, there's not going to be any horse coming from last to win. If it's, you know, low 47s, high 46s, it's probably in between. Uh, you know, a pace presser could win, a good closer could win. If it's anything faster than that, you have to start thinking about closers. And he said, when you're on the far turn with that half mile time in mind, use that guide as to how far back you go with the field in your binoculars and, you know, announce the horses. Um, and that was right too. He's like, you know, as, as they round that turn and you, you know, that half mile time, you know, what's, what you can expect in terms of, of race shape from there. And what was, you know, and it's helpful to, to, be a racing fan and sort of a horse player at times that you can also tell visually if the horses up top are struggling or if they're going on strong and vice versa. So that was good. Uh, that was the second piece. The third piece was right. So this is very true at Churchill in particular. The booth is way high. You've seen it. It's a good six stories up. And the way the track, the track is actually angled a little bit toward you. So when they turn for home, they literally turn directly at you. And it's at a very critical point, obviously the top of the stretch. And so he's like, you have to get a mental snapshot of those horses outside the quarter pole so that when they turn for home, you know who they are. Because all you see is the front of the horse and basically maybe the tip of the cap of the jockey and hopefully his sleeves. And that's it. So he said, get that mental snapshot so that you know who's who when they turn for home. And then uh, his final thing was, at the eighth pole, the derby is often decided. So whoever's in front of the eighth pole is often going to win and, um, you know, have some stuff in mind for, for the, 
you know, the last furlong of the, of the race, depending on, on who it is. Um, it was just, just phenomenal advice. And, uh, I still use that. Keep going to this day. Um, the snapshot was, was super critical because if you remember that 15 Derby, was it Mr. Z? Mr. Z was in the race for Zayat too, I believe. Yeah, he was. Yeah. In addition to American Pharaoh. So they had very similar silks. Um, and I remember the first time by, I did double check my cheat sheet to make sure that, that it was in fact American Pharaoh in third. And turning for home, he was on the outside, and it could have easily have been just a mental slip up, calling Mister Z instead of him. But that sort of mental snapshot uh, was super helpful. So I mean, it was he didn't have to spend that time, but he did, and and the advice was so on point, and uh, forever grateful for that. And uh, it helped us get through it. Absolutely. And it's funny. I actually, someone can check me on this. I, I'm pretty sure I remember you saying, because there was some inflection in it, that materiality was 15th. So pause, yeah, the, pause yeah, the podcast. Was, and listen to that. I think uh, you can hear it. Um, you know, being a horse player, materiality was speed, right? Like a sort of a pace presser type. And he was way off the pace. And you can hear in my sound, my inflection, that... Um, a little bit surprised, like, you know, materiality is off the pace or whatever I said. I don't even remember. Yeah. But, yeah. um, yeah, those little things as, as, uh, you know, those are just little things you, you insert as a race call. You try and, uh, capture what's happening a little bit. Um, in 16, in 16, I remember, I, I love that you, I don't remember if you told me before or after, maybe it was after you were concerned because of the, the lighting on Derby, you were concerned about the silk color of exaggerator who wore green and my man sam who wore like that the 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 uh, matikit silk the you know the ones that uh, lady eli wore and you were concerned and but you you knew the way that that i think you told me you could tell that it was kent and that's how you knew it was exaggerator yeah there's two um there's two moments actually i should say three moments in the derby that my brain briefly panicked one was Exaggerated by man, Sam, they did look a lot alike. Remember the sun had finally come out and uh, they were just sun washed. And so their colors looked so similar. And I remember being on the far turn and they both had a similar running style, remember, but they were both closer types. And I remember seeing one of them start to move. And for a brief moment, I didn't know who it was, but I recognized the riding style, very distinctive riding style of, of Kent DeSormo. And, uh, I just went on with it and thank God it was right. But, um, I, that, that is a memory burn moment for me. I'll remember that for the rest of my life. I can still see in the binoculars him down inside with those silks that look like my man, Sam, that was not fun. Um, last year with, uh, Vacoma and long range toddy, one of them was supposed to be more blue than black. But I mean, last year was just miserable weather-wise, and I remember they came on the track and uh, they looked ex- they looked both looked like a dark blue slash black color, and that was unnerving. That was very unnerving. Um, that one, uh, I'm, that last year's Derby was more about survival, uh, and then the other one was Vino Rosso, who um, I mean, it's like dark green silks, I believe, on Derby Day, and he too was all muddied from being at the back. And if you actually listen to that call, you can hear a slight hesitation in my voice um, where I'm just making sure that's who it is. And in fact, Kevin Kirstein, who works in communications at Churchill, 
uh, <laughs> sent me a text later that night. He goes, I'm glad you realized it was Vino Rosso because <laughs> he could tell <laughs> that I was trying to figure it out too. Uh, just, you know, little, little tidbits here, there, but yeah, no, the riding style of Kent Stormo, I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. It's my favorite thing to do after is to listen to, uh, listen to your calls. Now you mentioned that, um, the long range toddy in Vacoma, um, I don't. I'm look. I'm probably going to mess up the minutes, but what? What? The, you know, that derby, last year's derby. What were those 22 minutes like for you in the booth? Because obviously, for people that don't know, when there's an inquiry, the stewards pretty much tell you first, and then you announce it. And then when there's a change, they tell you first, and you announce it. And I know there's a lot of announcers that you can tell. I, I can. I know you well enough to know that you are in there and you are telling yourself you are, you are going to, whatever your decision is or whatever the decision is, you're going to come on and you're going to say it is you're not going to do anything tricky. No ladies and gentlemen, you know, whatever. What, what was that time like in between there and what were you thinking and how hard did you try to make sure that you didn't, uh, didn't put too much umph into it? Yeah. So I've been asked this and I mean, the God's honest answer is this. I was just so happy that that race was over. I really was. I mean, it was just, like I said a few seconds ago, it was such a race of survival from a race calling perspective that I was just thankful that it was over. I remember they turned for home and country house. I mean, who the heck expected country house to be there? And I remember panicking that, is that really who that is? Um, and and it was just sort of a, a wild race, and I was just happy that it was over. So when Butch popped in with the announcement of the objection, to be honest with you, I, I just figured it was, okay, this is one of those uh, frivolous claims that's probably going to get discounted right away because I didn't see anything to the naked eye, nor would I really have registered it anyway in a big race like that. Um and so I was just like, he, he told me what it was. And I think th- there's a video of me in the booth with all this. And I, th- I think I sat down or I just sort of like was just decompressing. And it took a few minutes, as I recall, for sort of the magnitude of it to, to creep in that, oh, man, something actually might be happening here. But again, I was still like, I'm so glad this is over. I, you know, I have to go back and hear the replay. I hope I didn't screw up, yada, yada. Um, but then Barb who's the head steward there came out of the steward's booth and went down to placing. And I was like, Ooh, okay. That usually means they're going down to find out where other horses finished so that they can figure out where to place said horse um, involved in whatever. And so at that point I was like, okay, this is definitely not definitely, this is probably happening. Um, And then there was a little bit of, it was a little helter skelter in a way because NBC wanted the announcements to be coordinated with my announcement with the board changing, and that did not happen. Um, so it was a little bit, uh, it was weird timing wise. But um, I, what I most remember is just being so thankful that race was over, and uh, and I was like, Can "We please get this day over so I can have a beer." <laughs> I wonder, um, <laughs> have you, have you tried to, have you tried to identify where your eyes were when the trouble happened? Do you think you were looking at code of honor on the rail? Like where do you, I, I'm curious. I just wonder it. Cause I'm sure your binoculars were still up, right? You hadn't taken them down yet. Well, the thing was it happened on a part of the turn where uh, the, the horses are, I'm looking at the side of them. So when they move in and out, 
uh, I don't see it. It's just my angle was bad at that point. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, and everybody's always like, how could you not announce that? And I was like, well, you have the benefit of watching a blimp camera and another camera happening right above the incident. Keep in mind where I am. I'm literally looking at the side of the horse. And, you know, from that perspective, it's hard to identify horses moving in and out in that sort of manner. I do remember, was it long range toddy that sort of checked out of there from that? Um, and, and I said to myself, man, I, I could maybe announce that, but he was also a gigantic long shot. And a lot of times those gigantic long shots fade fast on the far turn. So I chose to ignore it. Um, and, and above and beyond all that, like that was a wild far turn. I remember code of honor making a move. I remember Pluska parfait making a move. I said in the call, which there's a lot of people at Churchill that actually say, I said in the call, Tacitus takes off. And the crowd sort of cheered and reacted to that. And a lot of people believe that's what maximum security reacted to. Um, And if you go back and listen to the call and sort of watch the incident, it does sort of happen. Bang, bang. Tacitus takes off, crowd roars, maximum security veers out. Um, So I I believe that to be a possibility, too. If I would have heard you, I would have screamed because I sure needed Tacitus. (laughs) I think I've needed Tacitus every day since. Yeah, exactly. I divorced. I finally divorced him. I signed my papers after the Jockey Club Gold Cup. And, uh, so I'm, I'm divorced. There's, there's a, there's an opportunity for reconciliation at a mile and a quarter with a lot of speed in the race. But outside of that, uh, no, he's, he's, uh, it's over. I hear you. I hear you. Um, now, so this is interesting because as you know, you, you have the, you know, you had the luxury in that situation, obviously, and I'm sure people have heard you say this before to not have a wager down as a person who bets horse racing, which, you know, you do bet. Um, and very well, might I add, um, you do not bet races that you call, um, understandably so. So the first thing I wanted to say was, is, you know, do you miss betting the Derby? And was that something that you had to learn to do or were you, did you get some advice early in your career to never do that? I was never given specific advice. Um, I remember when I first got started, I would gamble a little bit here or there. And you mentioned his name, my good friend, Nick Tamaro. I was calling a race at Louisiana Downs. And I remember the horse's name. I think it was Pioneer Tiger. And he had come off a trip. And I was like, I got to bet this horse. He's probably going to win. And I did. And he won. And Nick calls me without knowing. And he asked me, did you bet this horse? And I'm like, what? He goes, did you bet it? I was like, I did. And he goes, yeah, I could tell. And that was, I think, the last race I ever bet that I called. Um, that was uh, a brutal course. The, the, you the look like one, the though. smartest guy who knows you the best in the room ruin it for you. <laughs> of course, <laughs> Nick can tell. You know what, though? That's what makes a good friend because that, yeah. that was a call that I needed. And um, and he's right. And, and to this day, I've stood by that. Betting on races as a race caller, if the announcer tells you that they can give an unbiased call, I flat out call them a liar. I just think it's impossible. Um, I, there's just no way that you can be unbiased in a race call where you have money down. And it's not fair to people that are listening. And not only that, it robs you of the ability to do a good call. You know, you, you're, your focus is elsewhere. You're missing or not paying as much attention to critical things that are happening in the race or the developing story in a way that could make for a better call. You, you're just, you're not tuned in. So uh, yeah, Pioneer Tiger was the last one. Uh, he won, so I went out on top. But uh um, I haven't done it since. Now, do I miss betting the Derby? Um, same guy, Nick, came to the booth for American Pharaoh's Derby. I said, here's a hundred bucks, whatever the number was. I said, I want to be involved in your bets because it would be un-American to not bet the Derby, but do not tell me who we played. 
<laughs> and I think he bet for a net loss uh, in that uh, <laughs> in that in that race. But uh, do I miss betting the Derby? I think the Derby is is such a fun race to bet, particularly the for the style of wagering that I like to do. As you know, I like to find sort of long shot closers to round out trifectas and superfectas and build the ticket from the bottom up. And I mean, what better race to do that? I mean, how often do long shot closers sneak onto the ticket? Um, I remember I, I hit the orb derby trifecta a few times. That was great. I missed California Chrome, but there really weren't very many long shots that rounded out stuff there. And I was a little bit against him anyway. Um, but I've, I've had a lot of success betting the derby. And uh, unfortunately that stopped uh, a few years ago, but, and I do miss it because it is, it's, it, it's the greatest race in the world. And who doesn't want to have a bet down when the, the scores are potentially life-changing, you know? Yeah. But you're, you, you're, you're involved, right? You know, I mean, that's part of it is like, I think people just want to be involved and being, having a wager makes you feel more involved, but you're, you're pretty damn involved, you know? And it's funny. I, I had the same, it's just it's different, but a similar experience when I, when I first started coaching high school football and at the beginning they had me up in the booth and I was in like the coach's booth and I had a, you know, and I, my job was to look at the secondary. So, you know, if we're running the ball, I'm not supposed to watch the ball. I'm supposed to look at the secondary and then tell the offensive coordinator. If he asks me, are they, are the safeties being aggressive? What coverage are they playing? All these things. And I'll never forget the day that he was like, what the safety, what the backside safety do when we ran zone, you know, strong. And I was like, uh, I don't know. Cause I was watching the play, you know, cause you're just so, you know, the whole first part of my life, I watched the ball, you know, that's what you yeah. do when you watch football. And so I can imagine, you know, and, and, and even uh, horse players who, who trip, no, who do trip notes, it's hard. You had to teach yourself to not watch the horse you bet on if you're tripping live. Yeah. And, and I've watched Paul and Duke kind of perfect that, like, you know, they, they can have, they could be alive to a horse for a ton and they're still doing their trip note about the horse that, that missed the break and is four wide that's not going to get anywhere. So um, it makes total sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, and the it's cool being a part of the race in that you can still deliver the drama, the excitement, and and share the story of what's happening. And like you said, still involved, and that's that's good enough for me. Um, but I do miss it. And yeah, it. Anybody that tells you they can uh, call a race and bet the race and give an unbiased call, uh, throw a pie in their face. Now I'm going to ask you this, and and you can you can defer, but in September, will you in the call acknowledge that the race is being run in September, or will you acknowledge if there's fans or not in the call, or is that you'll just figure it out? Uh, one thing that. Um, I've taken very seriously since I started calling the Derby is the few moments right before the start, when the horses approach the gate, when the horses load into the gate, and then right before that last horse enters the gate. Uh, to me, and it's funny that you bring this up because yesterday I turned on, um, I was doing some work on the laptop and I turned YouTube on and had the full broadcast of Winning Colors Kentucky Derby. So I'm like watching this broadcast as if it's happening live and they're on the track and they're warming up and they're going to the gate. And I could, even though obviously I knew who won that Derby, however many years ago, um, I could feel the tension in the broadcast and the experience of these horses approaching the gate for the Derby. And I can... I go back to when I was a kid and, and growing up all throughout life. To me, there's nothing more intense about a big horse race than literally those quiet few minutes when they're approaching the gate. And it's like all of this, 
all this preparation, all this excitement, all of this studying, uh, everything has been accumulating and building for all this time. And all of a sudden, we're like right at the moment where it's going to be decided. And to me, there is no bigger tension than the moments before they load into the gate and when they're loading. And of course, obviously, right before the gates open. So I'm, I've always made it a point to try and capture that. In my first derby in, in 15, Greg Bush, who is in charge of operations at Churchill, told me, he goes, this is a record crowd. Uh, I think it's what 150,000 or whatever it was. And I was like, man, that is part of the story today. And so I think I said when they're loading and before a record crowd of 150,000, it's time for the Kentucky Derby. And you can just hear the crowd roar. And that is such an awesome moment. Um, so fast forward to this September, uh, crowd or not, now the anticipation for that derby has not just lasted until the first Saturday in May. It's gone several months beyond that. Uh, I will try and come up with something that captures the magnitude of that moment. You know, something along the lines of we've been, you know, we had to wait a year and X number of months, but it's finally time for the Kentucky Derby again. Um, we'll see. Uh, that's, that's sort of where the, uh, where the focus will be on that. Now, in terms of if there's an audience there, who knows, but, um, Anybody listening, I, I hope to capture that moment for him. If you if if you had to put uh, if you had to get one of your derby lines, you know, I don't know, whatever, what do you want to say? Tattooed bumper sticker on your car, um uh, tombstone, which which what's your favorite line, one that you're the most proud of that you've used in your in your five Kentucky Derby calls? Oh, um, I'm going to chill a little bit and give you a couple just because uh, – so the first derby was just the, the magnitude and the pressure was so intense for me. Um, it was There was a lot of I need to prove to the world that A, Churchill Downs made the right hire and B, that Travis Stone can call big races. And so almost every line that I said in that derby that I had in mind ahead of time, I'm very proud of. Even stuff like the long-legged Dortmund, um, Frosted is starting to warm up. Uh, you know, those types of lines, I was very proud of those just because of the the magnitude of the event. But in terms of, of other lines, when Justify, I was a big Justify fan, Darren Rogers and I, who spent a lot of weekends together in the Derby off season, watching races leading up. Um, we had both just totally bought into what that horse was capable of. I saw him win at Santa Anita when I was out there one weekend and I was like, this horse is the nuts and he's going to win. And this is going to be great. I need a line that really captures that captures it all. And uh, and I can't remember when I came up with it, but I do remember Aaron Judge as a Yankees fan. Um, there was people in the stands one game holding a sign that said, all rise for um, the judge or something like that. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And for whatever reason, I just ended up making the connection, justify justice. I don't, you know, I don't know. And it'd be cool to say all rise for justify. And uh, so I'm, I'm pretty proud of that one. That was uh that was a cool moment. Even Nick, who's in the booth, he sort of uh, looked at me. He goes, that was a great line. Uh, you get Nick's approval. You've done well in life. Uh, oh, no doubt. <laughs> so <laughs> if, you, if you get his disapproval, you, you might not be doing bad either. Exactly. Um. <laughs> uh, no, all rise for Justify. And, you know, the other thing with like everybody obsesses in terms of race calls with that, um, that sort of that I call it the winner's encore, like the line that you're going to just say, here's the winner and this is why this winner is awesome. And in my notebook, I call it the winner's encore. And uh, it's they're hard to do because you can overdo them. You can underdo them. You can sound silly doing them. Um, I thought that 
those four words just perfectly captured what that derby was for him. And uh, it just happened to be that he was a triple crown winner to boot. Yeah. One of my, my most, my favorite subtle one, obviously my favorite is frosted warming up, but my favorite subtle one, I'm pretty sure was, I think you did uh, Dortmund's not done yet. Yeah. Yeah. That was in my notebook. Yeah. I mean, playing on sort of the sounds of words and stuff uh, that's, that always works in terms of a race call. I definitely had that uh, written down. Uh, firing line is firing. I think was another one I wanted to sort of maybe throw in there. Yeah, Dortmund not done yet. Yeah, that's funny. All right, so I want to get into some of like the kind of the cool parts of of your career path. Um, not so much for like the boring part, but like the fun part of those. But <laughs> this is one of those ones that you didn't know I was going to throw at you. But one of my favorite stories you tell and this, it's safe for this podcast, is uh, a horse that was named by uh, Robert Spiegel by the name of Radiant <laughs> Cut. And <laughs> I wanted you to tell everyone the story of, uh, of, of Radiant Cut. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so I'm calling races at Aqueduct in the winter. Grew up in upstate New York, calling races at Aqueduct's a pretty big deal. Um, I'm enjoying it, having a good time, going to Knicks games and all that jazz. And, uh, you know, as, as far as calling races go, Aqueduct's a great booth. There's no obstructions. Uh, the only thing you have to deal with is sometimes it feels like one of those airplanes landing at JFK is going to come right in the front door. But, um, you know, they come onto this track for a race, and there's this horse, and that's her name, and didn't think anything of it. Call call the race as normal, warm them up, get them memorized, yada, yada, yada. I remember memorizing that race a little bit because obviously it became a memorable race at one point. But um, yeah, it was, everything was fine and, and the race goes on. I did at one point say to myself, no, just be a little bit careful with this one. That's, uh, you know, cut can become something else pretty easily, but whatever. Uh, I got halfway through the race and they're going down the backstretch. And sure enough, it's subtle, but it's there. Um, there was, uh, the N, <laughs> the N slipped into the second word and I've never, I've never listened to it. I need to, I, I swear I've never listened to it. I need to listen to it. So it slipped in and now, now I'm just, I'm completely mortified with four furlongs to go in a race at Naira. <laughs> you know, this is not good. Um, I think it was my first winter there too, which is even worse. And uh, so the, the race finishes up and I, and I was fine with it the rest of the way. And I was like, maybe nobody noticed, right? And so I turn off the mic and put the headset down. And I kid you not, that headset hits the counter and my phone goes, I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) And so I was I was I was like, oh, good God, I hope this wasn't that bad. I was it was I was I felt awful. I just felt so bad. Um, And I I, speaking of I, I called Nick. And I said, what would you say if I accidentally slipped into a race call? And usually Nick's very supportive and he goes, uh, yeah, well, uh, I'm like, oh no. So I remember I called the TV truck and I said, you cannot play this replay. Uh, 
which of course then they wanted to know why. So that became a joke. Um, I remember calling, uh, I think Dan Silver was sort of in charge of TV at that point, And I called him up and I was like, dude, I said, it's not that bad. It's, it's very subtle, but it's in there and I feel awful about it. And he goes, don't worry about it. Nobody was, nobody cared. I mean, they didn't care, but it was totally fine. It was, a, it was an honest mistake. It was very subtle and only somebody truly, you know, like probably looking at the wavelengths on their computer would figure out what was actually said. And of course, then the the, the ball busting came around with the group text starting with friends and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I was I was uh, it bothers me to this day. Um, I would have paid to retire that horse if somebody asked. And uh, and that week I actually hired a voice coach in Manhattan to help me like sort of get over this. And, uh, the guy was right near times square. We went in there and I said, all right, here's what happened. And, and he gave me great guidance. There's, there's two different ways that you can say the, the sound T and one's like in the back of your throat where you just cut off the back of your throat. It's like cut, cut, cut. You don't even like move your lips. It's, it's all in the back or you can bring your teeth together and say, cut, cut. And he says, when you say it that second way, your tongue is in the same place that your tongue goes when you use the sound of an N. He goes, so the way to avoid that is to never, never say the T sound with your tongue up in the front of your throat. Just cut it off in the back. And uh, so, yeah, that was that was great advice. And and I'm thankful that I never had to call that horse again. And uh, thank you again for that. <laughs> Dude, I, I, the other day on the show, and I only had one person tweet. They didn't tag me, but someone sent it to me the other day on the Fox show. And I don't think it was on a big day. Thank goodness. I think it might have been on a Sunday. But I said, uh, you have to start at the bottom of a horse's pee-pee. <laughs> <laughs> and so one dude just like, you know, quoted me saying that or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> and I realized I'm talking to an audience that might not know what a PP is. So in our brain, that didn't even sound that crazy, but no, it didn't work good for him. Um, so now you, you mentioned uh, some of the training that you've had, and I know that there's not a ton, but there's one that I've always thought is really interesting. I'm, I'm sure people have heard you talk about it before, but the auction school um, that you went to. Um, how long did you do that for and, and, and how much do you feel like it helped? Yeah. So when I was in uh, high school, uh, big into computers and my dad was a police officer and had worked with a guy named Ed Haroff who had started an auction company after he retired, a tax foreclosed real estate auction company. And he needed somebody to sort of tweak his website a little bit. And I'd just been fooling around with it. And so I, don't know, I paid 20, 25 bucks an hour back in high school to work on this guy's website. And, but then I started to work on it more and more, and um, he really liked me, and God rest his soul, he, he passed away after taking a fall on one Christmas years ago. Um, great dude, though, and just you know gave me a laptop, so I had a, a better laptop to work with. And uh, at one point, he said, would you be interested in going to auction school? And I was like, auction school? Really? He goes, yeah, and you can go to auction school. I'll pay for you to go, and then when you come back, you can start auctioneering at our, our tax sales. And I was like, uh, yeah, sure, whatever. And so I flew to Earth City, Missouri, right outside of St. Louis, by myself. Uh, this, is, this is before you know cell phones were prevalent, and certainly you know it was a little bit uh, unnerving for me, but nonetheless went. And I spent eight days at the Missouri Auction School and learned how to be an auctioneer. Now it wasn't all the auctioneering 
that was involved in it. It was also a little bit of uh, you know more auction business oriented stuff. That was a real snooze. But um, I loved the bid calling part of it, and there were drills and exercises every morning. And 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 I'm not exaggerating here. There are several hundred people in this class, so this gigantic ballroom is filled with with wannabe auctioneers. And you all stand up, and every morning you start off by counting from ten to twenty to thirty to forty to fifty to and on up, and then back down again. And then you go into your tongue twisters, Tommy Tatum stick two T's, Tatum top two tall trees. And you do that for 20 minutes, then you sit down and somebody comes in to talk about the auction business, and then you break out into these little classes. And so I remember going to this one class, there's probably eight or 10 of us in this, you know, this is a good chunk of classes they split us up into. And my instructor, I can't remember his name, began with a B, but he was a cowboy, a cowboy hat, real tight jeans, and a gigantic belt buckle. I, I remember it very distinctively, and he had a great, just a real deep baritone voice. And so in these little breakout sessions, you would get up in front of the class and auctioneer. And and it and it was it was it was interesting because A, not everybody could auctioneer. Um some of them were were downright horrendous. Um but some of us had practiced a little bit or just had had some fun with it. And I was serviceable is how I describe it. And I remember getting up in front of this class and for whatever reason this cowboy made me nervous. And I struggled when I was up there auctioneering. He'd stand in the back of the room and you'd be auctioneering and he'd he'd bid call for you. He'd go, yep, yep. And you'd have to take a theoretical bid. So if you're at $10 and he goes, yep, you have to go to 15 or you have to go to 20 or what have you. And uh, and he stopped the class, which is really just stopping me. And of course, everybody's watching you at this point. So it's, it's not fun. Um, and he said, you're talking too high. So what do you mean? He goes, you're, you're way up here. Your, your voice register is way high. You have to bring it down. I said, okay. He goes, I'll give you a, a tip. He goes, before you get on the mic, go just like this. Bing, bong, bing, bong. He goes, do it. Bing, bong, bing, bong. He goes, that last bong is where you start talking when you get on a microphone. He goes, because when you start down there, you have all the way up to go. But if you start up here, you have nowhere to go. And he goes, that's when the tension and the nerves and the anxiety builds. He goes, so start down here. So it's funny of the entire auction school experience, all eight days by myself without a car in Earth City, Missouri, the biggest takeaway was bing, bong, bing, bong. And if you were to be in the booth with me before many big races, um, you'll hear me do the bing, bong, bing, bong. Horses have reached a starting gate, not the bing, bong, bing, bing, horses have, you know, you, then you're all, you're just tense. Um, it's funny. That was actually the same week that Smarty Jones lost the Belmont. I watched that by myself in my hotel room. Um, so 2004. So yeah, Earth City, Missouri, Missouri Auction School. We, we took one trip, a two hour drive out into the middle of the state and did one of those uh, consignment auctions where, you know, people bring in their grandma's plates and you have to you auction them off. And uh, I remember auctioning like these spoons for 25 cents. I was like, what is this going to do for me? You know, but it was an experience and I enjoyed it. Um, but bing, bong, bing, bong. That's hilarious. When, uh, so your first job in racing, was that Saratoga special? Uh, yeah, I remember. Um, so we used to go to Saratoga all the time. My dad was a police officer, but he saved vacation time for Saratoga. And whenever he had a day off, we drove down. 
and the Saratoga Special was there and getting started, and it was a great paper. You know, you, re- you read about it. it; was real horse racing centric. And when you're a racing fan at the Spa, you you absorb whatever you can. And I remember at the end of one year, oh, I can't remember what it was. I think I was with the Saratoga Special for two years, like in two thousand. Uh, four and five. So this would be 2003-ish. I had just graduated from high school, year of college. I remember writing Sean and Joe Clancy, um, hey, I'm Travis Stone. I want to be a race caller someday. Would love to get some more experience, blah, 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 blah. And they immediately called me and said, yeah, let's meet at the track today. It was like closing day. And I think I had been talking to Naira about a potential internship the following summer. But Sean convinced me, he goes, you'll have more fun with us. Uh, you should come work with us next summer. And so I did. And for two summers in a row, I lived in whatever establishment they had rented for the summer and wrote for the Saratoga Special, which was fun and challenging. Uh, I don't mind getting up early, but I do mind getting up early when I go to bed late. So that was hard. Um, but I, I wrote two summers in a row for them and, and got to interview some, some of the biggest names in the game and, and some of the coolest stories and, you know, just random things here or there. Like, uh, pretty sure I covered discreet cats maiden win when Stan Huff had him before the horse was sold. Um, cool. as cool stories about my favorite, maybe from the two years was, uh, lost in the fog and the King's Bishop. So Greg Gilchrist, the trainer, I was talking to him after the race. And one of the things that Sean was, and he was right about this. So true. He goes, the race is over. Every media person is going to go interview the trainer. And so everybody's quotes are going to be the same. Everybody's insights going to be the same. There's nothing special there. He goes, wait back. And when the trainer is finally done with all that stuff, go grab them and say, Hey, can I just have a few minutes? And it's just you and you and the trainer or you and the jockey or whoever. And next thing you know, like the whole story just will flow. And so the, Lost in the Fog wins the King's Bishop. And uh, and I remember getting up from the table that we were sitting at that day. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go grab Greg. And Greg said, hey, I got to go do the champagne toast. Why don't you come with me? And then we can do the, we can talk afterward. So he brought me into the, uh, what's it called at Saratoga? The, uh, not the chairman's room, wherever they do the toasts. And I toasted Lost in the Fog's King's Bishop win with him and all the connections we watched Flower Alley and the Travers from that room, and we got sculled out of there because obviously he didn't win the Travers too. And then he and I chatted for a good forty-five minutes after after the uh, after all that went down. And he was totally chill. He was totally relaxed, and uh, it was just a cool moment you know, as a racing fan, spending all that time with with Greg Gilchrist and Lost in the Fog. I remember talking to Rick Dutro. Saint Liam was around that time. Commentator was around that time. Um, I did a sort of uh, ahead of my time in terms of a podcast, I did this little radio show, internet radio show called Travis at the Track um, from the closet at the Saratoga Special. And I remember interviewing Charlie Hayward. He was in charge of Naira and uh, did an interview with him. And he would have, uh, <laughs> I remember we had the the device that I did the radio show on hooked up to the fax line. And uh, one time I was trying to do an interview and a fax kept coming in, <laughs> kept, interrupting, <laughs> kept interrupting the interview. Um, and then uh, the, the the place we were in for the office was getting renovated. And so the doorknob for the door in the closet, it was a closet basically that I was doing this radio show from, had a hole in it. And I remember Sean coming in one day when I'm interviewing Charlie Hayward and sticking his eye in the uh, <laughs> the doorknob hole trying to distract me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, good times.
Oh, I, you know, I mean, obviously I don't want to be doom and gloom. I, I, I worry about uh, them this summer, right? I mean, that, I mean, their whole year depends on people being there. Yeah. Obviously. Um, but I think the good thing though, is that uh, the stories still have to be told and maybe they just have to be told in a different way. And the interviews have to be gathered a different way, but you know, I mean, they're potentially going to be one of many victims of this whole situation and it's too bad. Um, but I hope they're able to put something out because what better way to experience Saratoga than to read that paper, right? If you can't be there yourself. So, uh, absolutely. I'm sure they'll have an online version or something like that. People could probably participate with. So keep an eye out for, for that. Um, so your first, and I honestly, I think I know, but your first job was Louisiana downs, right? And that was straight from college. Yeah. Uh, so in, uh, I grew up in a small town, where I think there was 13 kids in my graduating class, but thankfully they offered AP courses at the time. So you could earn some college credit as a senior. And I took, I took all that they offered because I was not into the social scene. So like bailing out of my senior year half day and going to the beach just didn't interest me. Um, I took AP statistics and bio and English and um, whatever else they offered. And so I had a built up some credits by the time college rolled around. And so I was able to graduate from college a semester early in December of 05. And the Louisiana Downs job popped up that spring. And I packed up the car, drove to Lexington, wrote for the Keeneland specials. Sean and Joe did a paper for that one meet, did that for a couple of weeks, then drove the rest of the way down to Bossier City and uh, started at Louisiana Downs that derby weekend that year, 2006. And it's just funny because had I not taken those AP courses and instead, you know, been one of the cool kids and bailed out a half day, uh, I would have to had no opportunity to take that job. I'd have still been in school for the first two months of the meeting. That would just would not have happened. So it's kind of funny how it works out. But yeah, no, losing the downs was the was the first one. I remember I I bought my grandfather's Subaru off him after he passed away. My grandma still had it, so she sold it to me. Trade in value. Appreciated that and drove across the country with uh, my entire life in the back of a green Subaru and upstate New York boys settled down in the deep South. You know, what's funny is, is, is I'm, I, um, and, and I'm saying all of this because at some point during this podcast, I do want to talk to you about, uh, just racing as a whole and, and, and the, the, the state of racing, the future of racing. And I think that this, this part of the conversation, if people aren't familiar with you and, and, and what, you bring to the table, um, you are uniquely qualified. You're not just a race caller. You really understand the betting. You understand the, the, the racetrack operation. You understand the game, uh, intimately at, at a lot of different levels. And so I think that this conversation of, of all of the hats that you wore at Louisiana Downs is one that qualifies that later quali- uh, later conversation. But the first time I ever went, actually the only time I ever went to Louisiana Downs, uh, I, I came with Nick Tamaro and he took me up to the, you know, second or third floor there. And he showed me that massive wall where there's like a big picture of a past performance. I was going to say PP, but I didn't want to do that again. Uh, a massive picture of a past performance with, I mean, I'm, when I say massive, I mean like huge, like a, it, it like, uh, I don't know. I mean like, uh, well, you know, like almost like an almost. Yeah, it was twenty feet. Yeah, it was almost like a twenty, like like a tennis court, like width yeah. type. It was huge, and it just lays down and it breaks down all the parts of of the thing. And then and then Nick let me take it in, and he said, "This is Travis is doing." 
I was like, what? And so uh, tell me about your Louisiana Downs time. Obviously, you were a race caller there. You had a lot of fun as a race caller. But what are some of the other hats that you wore while you were there and some of the other jobs you had? Yeah, so when I first got there, Mark Midland hired me. Um, and it was – so 2006. This is right before the real estate meltdown occurred. And we had a couple of great years. Um, it was a lot of fun. The races were rolling. We had good super derbies. It was just fun. And then, uh, the economy sort of made that gigantic turn. A lot of people that worked there lost their jobs and it just got a little bit dire for a bit. And I was forced into a sort of a hybrid role of, I don't want to say force. That's probably not the right phrase, but I grew into this hybrid role of race calling among other things. And, it got to the point where I was helping with operations in, in all aspects of racing, which I enjoyed. Um, and I also felt safer because, you know, the more you do, the more valuable you are and the, you know, the less likely they are to, you know, terminate your role or what have you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just started to get involved in more things and, you know, sort of working on super derby recruiting or uh, what have you. And through my experience in high school working on the web, with Photoshop and things of that nature. And I had still kept an interest in all this stuff. I came up with this idea to make a gigantic beginner's wall um, to help people bet better and, and to understand uh, handicapping. And so, I mean, I'm an old Macintosh laptop. I it probably couldn't even open the file today. I just sat in my office and day by day, I hacked away at this design where I took a gigantic set of past performances, sprung them way out across the entire this was going to be like, a, I think it was 20 feet, maybe longer, a wall taller than I was and put the past performances there and tried to figure out the right way to explain them. And then on the right side of them, I did this matrix of wagers and wager difficulty with some definitions and uh, just called it the beginner's wall and showed it to everybody and pitched it. And they were, of course, on board. So we found a printer in town to print it and they came out and uh, basically, I don't even know what the term is. They installed it on this wall. Like it's, the sticker sticks to the wall completely. It's like a permanent part of the wall now. And it is, you can't miss it. If you've seen it when you walk in. It's just a gigantic set of prayer for relief past performances with a bunch of guidance on how to do it. And uh, Caesars had an employee recognition program. And I got an award for innovation that year uh, for that wall. And if you actually go to Aqueduct, there's a reincarnation of that wall at Aqueduct. I saw a reincarnation of it at the fairgrounds this past winter, uh, which is very, it's very cool. Uh, you know, it it's nothing earth shattering, um, but I was very proud of it. And so, yeah, that was, those are the sorts of things that I would uh, dive into at Louisiana Downs when I wasn't calling races. It wasn't always peachy keen, though. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, so we had a quarter horse meet there in the winter. And uh, I remember sitting in my office. Did you ever call the cues? I did. I did. Okay. Yeah. Is it much uh, harder? Uh, no. I mean, uh, honestly, when you're calling a quarter horse race, you just rattle off names. Nobody knows the difference anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I remember sitting in my office working on something. There was some sort of problem, if I remember correctly. And I get this call to my desk and they're like, uh, are you going to call these races? And I'm like, what? And I realized that like, it was post time for the first quarter horse race on this random day. And it was a good 200 yard run from my office, uh, if not longer, up to the booth. And I got to the booth completely out of breath. I had called the stewards. I said, please just delay for two minutes. I got to get upstairs. And I remember running up the stairs, 
um, taking the elevator and then two more flights of stairs. And let's be honest, this was at a period of time where I was not exactly in derby shape. And uh, I get to the top floor and I am completely gassed. (laughs) I am gassed. And I'm like, oh, this sucks. So I grab the program off the desk and call the race. Well, wouldn't you know that not only did I sound awful to the point where people text me and said, are you dying? Uh, I grabbed the wrong program and I called the wrong race. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that was, <laughs> I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, just a was couple it your of mistake? Was it your mistake or did they do something funny on you to run early? Oh no, no, no. hundred percent my mistake. hundred percent my mistake. And the boss at the time was out of town. So it was great because like I had, I had, uh, I could come up with whatever I wanted to come up with to, to explain why that didn't happen um, or did happen. Um, and I just, I felt awful about it. So, you know, new protocols were put into place to make sure that I had made my way upstairs in time. But, you know, it's part of the, uh, the challenge of, of wearing many hats at a racetrack um, when you're the announcer. But I, I always uh, enjoyed being a part of that stuff because like I said before, it sort of made you, I don't, nobody's indispensable, but it helped in that regard. Um, but I also enjoyed it. You, you enjoy seeing the stuff you work on come to fruition. Like when that wall went up, for example, I was very proud of it. Um, there's a lot of things that I did there. It was, it was, that was a good learning experience for me and, and a good time. And, and, and the majority of people that I worked with down there were awesome. And they're all still friends to this day. It's funny. Like, uh, and I'm going to come back to the Louisiana Downs thing. <laughs> that story you told. You're going to, at some point before I even get done saying what I'm saying, you're going to start laughing. (laughs) That story reminded me of that time (laughs) that we tried to come up to see you after like it was Derby day and we tried to, or maybe it was Oak day and we tried to come up afterwards and they were, they had it, (laughs) they had it Fort Knox, (laughs) they had it Fort Knox up there. And so we had to take the stairs and it's the sixth floor. So we're coming up the stairs. We're all coming up the stairs, and we were with one of our friends who is uh, is a, is a much sexier man now than he was then. And uh, he got up there. What would he say? God damn, my kidney's gonna explode! <laughs> oh my god! He had to stop halfway. I dude, I was gassed. Those six flights of stairs are not like when you when you go to the fifth floor where the mansion is and you take that one that two flights of stairs that'll talk to you a little bit. Yeah, you feel that if you're not used to it. I, uh, oh man! A couple of times at the uh, I've considered taking all six flights at the beginning of the day as just you know maybe get an exercise routine, but then you know the elevator is just much easier, so uh, we do that instead. But uh, no, you, yeah, you, you go, for, right. go for a walk or something. Go for a walk. Um, super derby. So one of our friends, Nick told me to ask you this story. So hopefully this is a good one. Uh, super derby Eve, it it became all-star announcer day, amateur and pro. Yeah. Um, I, (laughs) I remember, uh, so just a bunch of the area race callers would come in for the day because Louisiana, despite the fact it has too much racing, uh, Super Derby always fell around a time when none of the other tracks were running. And so a lot of the area announcers would come up to the track that day and we'd share the mic. Um, Pat Cummings came in one year, Michael Chamberlain, John McGarry, just a a smorgasbord. And Nick came to Super Derby one year and uh, elected to uh, call a horse race. And uh, to his credit, he did very well. Um, I remember they turned for home and, you know, as a race call, you can always tell, 
you can just tell what's going on in the race caller's mind. And I could tell that he didn't really know who this one horse was. I remember whispering it in his ear right behind him. And he picked right up on it. Nick's a sharp dude, so he would. Uh, but yeah, Nick Nick has called some uh, Louisiana Downs races in the past. And the, those were fun. I remember uh, Photo Billy was the photo finish guy. Uh, last name was Andor. I think he's in Buffalo. I don't, I don't even know what Photo Billy's up to. But he came in the next day and he goes, you know, that one announcer was better than the next. He goes, that was a great time. And, and it was cool. It was just a fun sort of little ritual we had for a few super doobies there is just to pass the mic around throughout the day. And that allowed me to sort of, you know, take some time off. Not that I needed it, but it was nice to... When you call races at a track all the time, when you can watch a race as a fan, you actually enjoy it again. So uh, I, that, that part was cool. But yeah, no, Nick, uh, there's a YouTube video somewhere, I think, of, of him I think doing I it. I saw it recently. What, what was your, uh, didn't your first call, did Larry let you come up? Or who, what was yeah, like your so first proper, was, uh, proper call? Yeah, I was in college and I was just emailing people, uh, emailing race calls at all the tracks, just trying to network. Um I didn't really know what to do. My family was not in racing. I didn't have a connection. I was going to have to figure it out. And so I just, I sent a bunch of emails around and, uh, I remember Larry wrote me back and he goes, if you ever want to come call a race, come on out. And so one day in the middle of a winter break, I want to, I don't remember what year it was. Uh, my dad and I drove out to Boston from upstate New York, three or four hour drive, maybe a little longer. And I called a couple of races on that card. And, uh, I remember before them, I was in this booth next to his and and they're loading in for this race and he's no nowhere near the mic. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, like the last two horses are loading in and Larry comes running into the booth, picks up the binoculars and calls the race. And I remember saying to myself, Oh my God, that's psychotic. How do you do that? Like that's I, I how, you know, whatever. And now I, I can relate to that when you're an announcer and you're used to horses, you can run into the booth, pick up the binocs and, and start calling the race as long as you grab the right program. But, um, I remember calling those races and I was awful into the micro and into the cassette tape. And, uh, but when I got onto the mic for the two races that I did call, they went great. They really went great. I think the only thing that was a problem was, um, I just, I wasn't enunciating. My voice wasn't loud. I was too conversational. So you couldn't really hear it, but, um, I remember uh, there was a horse named Sarah Dara in one of them and Unique Mystique in another. I think I only had one little blunder at one point, but when they turned into the back stretch, there was this gray horse in front. I think it was Sarah Dara. And of course, I was nervous as nervous could be. But I remember when when they turned into the back stretch, I said to myself, okay, I can do this. Like, I this feels right to me. This is this is what you want to do. Um, so yeah, forever, forever grateful for Larry for that opportunity. And then um, one other opportunity um, was John and Brielle let me come down and call races next to him at Aqueduct in this closet slash booth next door. Um, and I hung out between races with him. He was awesome. Very nice. And then Harvey Peck came up for a few races and so got to meet Harvey on a more personal level. Um, so, I mean, I'm very fortunate for the for the willingness of of these guys to, you know, not encroaching on their space, but giving up some some real estate to do that. And, uh, and the final one was Tom Dirk. And that last year I was at the Saratoga special. I shot him an email and I said, Hey, do you mind if there was nobody up on that catwalk above the press box? If I just had a tape recorder up there and, and called some races and he goes, just clear it with these people. It's fine with me. And chowders first, I think the name was one, some dirt six furlong New York bread sprint. I don't remember, maybe the, not the cab Callaway or maybe the James Marvin or some stake like that. And, uh, that was the call that I used on my demo tape for Louisiana downs. 
So three very fortunate and gracious hosts, if you will, gave me an opportunity to get some practice. Um, then it all it all led to this. So uh, yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Suffolk Downs. It was cold. Oh, I was so cold. Oh, I bet. I, <laughs> I can't. I can only imagine. I uh, I know you're a huge fan uh, and, and obviously friends with John Embryo. I'd imagine you're pretty excited for him to have the opportunity. Obviously, it's going to be a a trickier year than I think that, you know, it was probably planned out for him to be, to have, uh, to be the Naira caller, but I'd imagine you're happy for him and, and his career to, to, to have this, this, uh, full year under his belt. Thrilled for Johnny. I, I mean, everything you read about him is accurate. He's just a good dude, just a really good dude and a, an excellent race caller. Uh, I mean, if, in fact, I might argue the most consistently good race caller out there. Uh, when the mic comes on and Johnny eyes on it, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get a good race call. So he's deserving of this opportunity. I'm thrilled for him. He was awesome to me when I was at Aqueduct those winters. Um, it was it was great to get an email or text from him like, hey, I'd like to take this day off. Could you call that day? Absolutely. You know, he, he was just awesome about everything. Um I'm I'm really happy for him, and I hope that hope that racing gets going sooner rather than later, so he can get his opportunity to show show the world that he's one of the top tier race callers this game has ever seen, and uh, he will, he absolutely will. Yeah, you know, I think it's you know, and this is uh, look, this is uh, I would never, you know, I would tell Angel Cordero this about riders as well, right? So I'm not just telling you this about announcers, but so much of what you do you can be as good as you want to be, but calling 10 claimers all day long, all the time, the excitement that you can give us, it's not the, it's not available. So your great calls come from great races with great horses that, that sets you up to do wonderful, beautiful things that, that make me, there's certain race calls I listen to. It makes my throat hurt and I start wanting to cry. It doesn't matter what it is, uh, where I'm at when I hear them. And it's not because the race call was, that magnificent it was it was the marriage of both of them the race call being magnificent but the race being great as well so i'm excited to hear johnny i call uh, you know a a a jerkins to call a travers to call a woodward to call a whitney to call a diana like that you know giving that moment rather than calling no offense 16 claimers on the inner and aqueduct in december when we're cold and the jockeys have masks on like yeah it's that doesn't allow him to do his thing. No, and, and he's and he's so good at capturing moments too. And I think one of the, like the the most underrated things about what he does, like his voiceover work for all the Naira commercials, are just they're so full of energy. And when he brings that to race calls, it just takes him to a whole nother level. And he does that with the big stuff. So I'm yeah, I'm I'm just like you. I'm really excited for him to have this chance to, like you said, call a Woodward, call a Travers, call a Whitney, and uh, leave his mark on New York racing. And you know, this past weekend, I, I mentioned I was watching that old uh, Derby broadcast, and of course, YouTube leads you down this vortex, and eventually, some random show came on where it was like a recap show of New York racing. And we're talking, we're going back to late, like eighties, early nineties. And Johnny, I did the, uh, the intro and the sort of the voiceover of the prices after the race was over. And I was like, man, this guy's been around forever, a true staple and a true icon in racing and particularly at the New York level. So yeah, I'm thrilled for him. So, uh, I'm sure some people thought this, I mean, I know the answer now, but I'm going to let you share it with everyone else. I was shocked, uh, a couple years ago. I think it feels like now, and who knows, I've been in my house for 45 days. It's everything that runs together. A couple of years ago, when you were, you know, doing the part-time thing at Aqueduct, 
Um, I've, I've always thought for you that obviously getting to New York at some point would be something that you would like to do in your career. But I also know how much you love Louisville and Churchill Downs. What was into your decision in that one moment when you left New York? So I think it's important. I, I think that I'm not, you know, I know that I got to hear the, the reason why you left, but I think other people might be interested to hear why, why you decided to not uh, continue because it didn't interfere with your Churchill schedule. No, no, I can, I can tell you the exact moment that I was, um, I mean, there were just a lot of factors at play. One was which um, I sort of was working my way out of a relationship Um with a lady in Louisiana that was, was very rocky. Um, and just trying to, to balance all of that, uh, moving across the country, basically or halfway across the country twice a year. Um, it was a lot finding a place to live in New York city. Every winter took its toll. Um, and I remember I was walking to a FedEx office in Manhattan. It was sort of one of those nice early spring days where you feel like it's 90, but it's probably only 50. Um, so I'm like, in jeans and t-shirt and I'm carrying this box to, to have it shipped back to Louisville. Cause the, uh, the time at Naira was just about up for that year. And, and I said to myself, this sucks. Like I'm, I'm, I'm just really tired of moving my life around. Um, it had nothing to do with anybody at Naira. I loved working with everybody at Naira. That's a great group of people, many of which you're now friends with, and I'm friends to this day with. Um, I just really, the, the, it was a lifestyle decision. And, uh, but I figured, you know, by the time you get back to Louisville and the Derby comes around and you're, you're rolling into the summer, you'll be fine. Well, um, sure enough, you, you don't think about it. Derby season and calling the races at Churchill that spring, get to Saratoga. I remember toward the end of Saratoga, it did start to creep into my mind um, about having to start to find a place to live in New York. And I mean, I, I just can't underestimate understate how like brutal that is. It's not fun. Um, you know, everybody wants long-term deals. So finding short-term rentals is a pain. And I had realized that I do not want to drive my car around Long Island, um, probably ever again. So it was sort of like, I want to live near the subway so I can take the train to, to Aqueduct and, and, uh, you know, it was just a pain. And I finally realized about midway through September of that year. And, and I talked to everybody that I respect in this game that, you know, I felt, was appropriate to, you know, as you said, Nick, I talked to Nick about it. I talked to my parents about it. Um, even some folks at Churchill about it that I trust and respect. And I was like, I, I don't know if I want to go back and it's, I'm just worried that it's for all the wrong reasons. Um, but I'll say this, I called Dave O'Rourke up and I, and I, I said to him, Dave, I said, I'm sorry, I can't come back. I said, I just, from a lifestyle perspective, I, this is giving me great anxiety thinking about having to move there. You know what Dave said? He goes, that's absolutely fine. I understand. And uh, I will always have infinite amount of respect for that response because I can't tell you the relief that I felt when that happened. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that was that was all it was. It was, it was truly, I'm a homebody. I like being home. Um, I like routines. And, and I like friends and family and, you know, with have established some relationships with people here, having to leave that for four or five months and then come back and just, um, above and beyond all that, it was, it was really boiled down to finding a place to live. It was just, it was so anxiety inducing. Um, but I was, you know, that was not an easy decision because you're right. Like my goal, one of my main goals, my entire life was to always call races in New York. Um, to go back home and call races in front of family and friends back home. And so it was hard. Um, 
but I can't tell you the relief that I felt the minute I made that call. And I, if Dave ever happens to listen to this podcast, I, I, I hope he understands how much I appreciated his understanding in it. Uh, it was, it was awesome. And, and then it allowed me to also travel a little bit and, and have some fun in the winter. I still travel up to go to the races at Aqueduct at least once a winter, um, except for this year. Um, you know, go down and see some friends in, in, in Florida and Louisiana, went to the Santa Anita handicap for the first time. Um, so there were some benefits, but, uh, it was, it was mostly a lifestyle decision and it was not fun, not a fun one to make. Speaking of traveling, I just, I just thought about this, that <laughs> thought about, uh, earlier this year when, uh, my girlfriend and I go to get in the Uber line in, in Louisiana, we were there for, uh, what was that? Uh, risen star. Yeah. And and we look over and you're standing in the line. Well, you're not in the line because you you got the big body. You got the the Uber XL. So you got to we didn't have you didn't have to wait. So we hopped in with you. Dude, can you believe that we were in in uh, New Orleans like 15, 20 days before like this global pandemic started and that being like a hot a hotbed for it? Well, based upon what I saw those two nights that uh, we spent on the town, uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised that it became a hotbed. Holy cow! I, <laughs> that was that was a weekend. Uh, yeah, I remember standing in. The, I mean, I'd, remember the line was forty or fifty people deep, and I said to myself, "You'd have to be insane to wait in this line." So, like, I instantly went into like, "All right, where can I get a better option?" And uh, you just had to go one level up on the Uber uh, option, and I was like, "Okay, yeah. here we go." And then I. I think I saw you walk by. I was like, man, that guy looked familiar. And I turned and I looked and, oh, my God, that's him. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, – <laughs> yeah, that was – that was, talk about random. I mean, that was random yeah. flight time for me and uh, went down there to some – he's friends with you as well, Norm Cassie, a good friend of mine, had a, had a horse or two in that weekend and his family was coming in. So we just had a – we had a great weekend, a lot of fun. Um, I love New Orleans and I love New Orleans for two days and then I got to get out <laughs> and, that, and that's what I yeah, did. The, you know? That's the one thing I'm missing, man. I'm missing a lot is, you know, one of the, one of the most fun parts of this racing life that we've all chosen is, is, is the excitement and the, the different vibe from just being able to go to place to place. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you land at LAX, you get over to Arcadia, you go to Santa Anita. There's that feeling when you walk in there and, the friends you get to see there. There's a feeling when you get off the air, you know, the airplane at Bluegrass Airport and go over to Keeneland and you're in the parking lot and you're dealing with the green coats who are harassing you for no reason, but you still love them. And uh, when you walk into Churchill and you get dropped off in front of the Barbaro statue and you get to, it's just Saratoga and Belmont and Gulfstream. And it's just, it, that's what I've just, I've been missing is just like, going through TSA and going to a racetrack. I, it, I know it sounds stupid. A lot of people probably hate TSA, but man, it gets me excited because it means I'm going somewhere and I have clear and TSA pre-check. But um, what racetrack, what, well, not what race, what race have you never called or what, what racetrack have you never called that, that you would like to just, just call one, like just call one race and what race would it be? Ooh, I would love this is an obvious answer. I'd love to call a race to Saratoga someday. Um, and if there was one race, it would have to be the Travers. When I was a kid growing up, we, um, we went to Saratoga all the time, but for whatever reason, my parents had a strong allergy to crowds and we went to the corporate report Hansel Travers in 1991. I think it was. And I was just so busy. I just remember being very, very busy and, 
that was it for my dad. Like he didn't want to deal with those people for the next few years. So we were always stuck watching the Travers on TV. But then I finally convinced him to start going again. And I want to say it was, I can't remember the first one back. It might've been Will's way. Uh, so, you know, four or five years later, but um, the Travers was just everything to me. It was the biggest race at Saratoga. Um, it's the one race that you wanted to go see. And we saw some humdingers. I mean, I remember Coronado's Quest and Victory Gallop, probably one of the most exciting stretch drives I've ever seen live. Uh, awesome again, who didn't win that year, if I remember correctly, lost, but he obviously became a really good horse in, in the subsequent season. Um, that was, that's just, I, I was jazzed every time to go to the Travers at Saratoga, and it would be, it would be way cool to, to be able to call that someday. Um, that's would you, would you call it the same way, the same, the same thing that when you, you know, it's the same distance as the Derby, obviously it's, it, you know, the, you know, the build up before they get in the gate, it's gotta be a little bit of a different vibe. I feel like the track, like the Derby build up starts before they, you know, it starts when they come out onto the track until they cross the wire. The Travers build up is when they break from the gate and when they cross the wire, like there's this Derby's got like a little extra piece to it. Um, would you call it the same way though, that you, you talked about earlier? Yeah. I mean, the Derby's the Derby, right? So that's definitely, um, that's always going to be in, in a level of itself. Uh, but for the most part, probably, I mean, I would, I'd have to think about it a little bit, but the, the field is not going to be 20. So you don't have to stress out too much about, uh, that component of it. Um, Saratoga is not an easy place to call. You, you can just see that watching on TV, you know, there's a lot of trees around and stuff. So there'd probably be a l- little bit of, uh, of anxiety there. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it would be a very, I think I'd structure it a very similar way. Um, and, but it all depends on, on who's in there. You know, uh, if it's a five horse field, that's a different type of call than a, than a 12 horse field. So, uh, that, that'd probably be the one race though, that I'd, uh, I would just like to call race to Saratoga. I, I, the number of times I've been to Saratoga as a kid growing up, falling in love with this game, running around and, and just my parents would let me loose. Um, I mean, if you were to ask Tom Durkin now, there was a period of time where I'd go down to the rail beneath the finish line. And instead of watching the race, I'd look up at him calling the race um, just to, you know, see what it was like to call a race. Um, so that's that's where this this love of the game all started and be cool to go back there someday and call a race. Yeah, you, you mentioned Durkin. What a magical dude, man. He I uh, this summer. No, Breeders' Cup, right? That's Breeders' Cup. Was, or, yes, Breeders' Cup was at San Diego last time. I can't I can never remember. We were uh, we were doing some like little video or something uh, for Breeders' Cup in, in the paddock, like on a like on a morning, uh, not even like three to, you know on Wednesday or something. And we were walking through. And Durkin was sitting there on a bench by himself. Like this is like nine in the morning, like by the paddock, the, the breakfast marquee and all that stuff's like at the eighth pole at Santa Anita. So he had, I mean, he just like literally came over there to just like, you know, sit in the sun at Santa Anita with his glasses on and just hanging out. And uh, I was with Pete and we stopped and talked to him for a while. And, you know, I've gotten to a point where, this is going to sound weird, but bear with me. I've gotten to a point where I've met enough people in this game that I I don't get that starstruck anymore. You know, I mean, if I still see Mike Smith, I'm like, oh, damn, that's Mike Smith. And if I see Baffert, I'm like, oh, that's Baffert. But I don't really get that starstruck anymore when I see other people because, I, you know, I've met him or I know him or I've been around him enough to kind of lose that. When I saw – I mean, I, did, I, was, I just felt like I was in straight fanboy mode. 
I, I just felt giddy. I, I, I felt like I was, you know, you feel like you're staring at someone when you're talking to them, like not eye contact, like staring at them. He, he's just such a magical man. And every time I look at him, I hear his voice and I think about all of these calls that made me fall in love with this game. And that's what it was. I mean, I was the guy that would go to a, an OTB and I'd make them turn the TV on. I wanted to hear the call. And just watching a race, don't get me wrong, for degenerate reasons, I can do that. But if I have a choice, I want to hear it. And and I feel, I feel like Durkin is the one that kind of instilled that in me. You know, it's it's interesting if you there's a lot of people out there that sometimes will argue that oh, I don't I don't need to hear the race call. I just mute the TV. The race call is not important. Um, and I actually I feel like they're lying because I'm like you. The 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 reason why I fell in love with this game was the the excitement of the horse race that was happening, but then the fabric and the added level of excitement that the race call brought made it that much better. And and how often do you think about some of the greatest races you recall seeing and that point of thinking or that point of origin comes from the race call? Um, you know, people remember those things. And and to me, that's one of the coolest parts about being a race call is you can help to capture that story, that drama, that moment, and nobody was or ever will be better at it than Tom Durkin. Um, he studied it, learned about it, worked at it, improved it, perfected it. And, uh, I mean, just the, his, his resume, you can go on to YouTube and type his name in and there's like 30 best of Tom Durkin highlight reels and it's for good reason. Um, yeah, that's, uh, and you know, I remember the first time I met him, it was after racing maybe 97. So I'd sent him that letter a few years prior. And I finally worked up the courage, like after the races to wait for him at the bottom of the steps at Saratoga, just to introduce myself. And he was super nice. And he said, Hey, uh, come up and watch a race sometime. And so like a few weeks later, I think it was like Friday of Travers week. If I remember correctly, I remember the horses in the race. My dad and I put dockers on cause we didn't usually sit in the clubhouse so we could go there and uh, went up and watched him call a race. Bensonhurst Best and Fort LaRocca, I think, were two of the horses in the race. And um, he let us come up and watch him call that race. And I remember my dad asked some sort of ridiculous question. And it was a typical, like, uh, I can't remember what it was. So, Tom, who's your boss? I think is what he asked him. And I was like, Dad, who, who cares? A very, very typical dad question, you know, or like, <laughs> totally embarrassed me. Um but, uh, you know, my dad's a curious guy, so whatever. But uh, yeah, I remember that very well. He let me keep the program. The program is somewhere either my parents' house or in, in Louisiana. Um, so, yeah, he was – that was – he's one of a kind. And, I, and then, you know, full circle back to the first question you asked, like his advice for calling the Derby, that only comes from someone who studied it, learned about it, and perfected it. And, and that's what he did. And, and uh, pretty awesome. There's something that he does now that I that I don't see a lot of people do, which is he showed this like next level of emotion within his calls, and maybe he didn't do it at the beginning, but I I can only like think of times and I can't think of a specific one. I can think of times of him of him like almost laughing in the call, like laughing about how fast the pace was. You know, it's like he would say it like they went 22 and change, you know, like he was laughing about how quickly they, you know, and so it's like that was something that I feel like he earned the right to do that. And I understand why others don't because it's that's a very 
you know, it's a very, uh, it's a fine line. It could be abrasive. Yeah. Right. But he, he did that. And that's, you know, um, you know, every time I look at those top 30 calls or whatever, and I I told him this, that, that day when I was fanboying under the tree at Santa Anita, I said, one of my favorite calls you ever did was one that you don't get a lot of credit for, but it, 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 it probably had to do with my connection to the horse, which is my whole point of this entire thing is that like, the connection to the horses, you know, accompanied by the call is what makes us fall in love was when uh, uncle Mo and Jackson Ben were in the Kelso. And it was like, uncle Mo's like kind of comeback race. And he, uh, when uncle Mo won, he goes, he's back. And I was just like, it, it, I can listen to it right now. And it makes my, my, uh, gets me get a lump in my throat. You know, it's, it's having the ability to be in the moment like that. It's just, it's remarkable. That's I, I, I now remember that call and you're hundred percent right. I mean, that's awesome. And now having been a race caller for a number of years, delivering that line in that way makes it even better. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you another one that I, I think is a little bit underrated that uh, I think only race callers would truly appreciate quite as much is when Arazi rocketed by Bertrando and he said the phrase, it's something like Bertrando is a stunned second. Like who who comes up with that in a race call? It'd be much easier to say Arazi is first, Bertrando is back in second, and such and such is third. But what a difference the word stunned makes to a horse being in second, right? I mean, he goes from just being in second to being like a discouraged and beaten down, and I can't believe this just happened second. What a great way to capture the drama of that moment, and that's what he was so good at. Um that to me is one of the yeah. He's back is another great example though. Yeah, so many good ones. There's yeah, a big brown bounding home to a convincing win, and I think he said the run for the roses. Like that was amazing. You know, I mean, I tell you the uh, <clears throat> in terms of of that sort of topic, I, I I have pretty strong opinions on what I think his best calls are. Um, and there's there's four of them that sort of always bounce around, but. One that comes to mind and, and I think is always going to be underappreciated is, and maybe not, maybe that's not fair for me to say, Smarty Jones's Belmont, which uh, was another one of those replays that I watched this weekend. Um, that was such a moment for America, right? There was no way Smarty Jones could lose that race. He was always going to win. And the race call and the drama of it was absolutely perfect. I mean, how else could you better capture the anxiety of a horse turning for home for the triple crown and the loss, the disheartening loss, like with a horse like Birdstone running him down and the way he ended that race. Um, I think that's one of them on the flip side, a little more of a positive note was uh tis now's breeders cup classic, you know, right after September 11th. If you go back and listen to that call, I believe that is one of the most technically sound and accurate calls ever. Um, just, it's so perfectly delivered. Uh, everything sounds good. All the moves are caught. Uh, it was a bit of a wild race on the far turn. There's a lot of horses putting in bids. None of them were missed. Um, to me, those were, were two of the best. And then I think you could throw a bag or a blanket over uh, the Ali Sheba Ferdinand Breeders' Cup Classic. I thought that was just, if you go back and listen to that replay, the crowd in the background, which I'm a big fan of hearing the the crowd in the background of these big races. Cause it's just so awesome. I thought that was good, but then cigars 95 classic where, I mean, you could tell through Tom's preparation that he basically had a lot of stuff in mind on, on how to call that race. And for the final quarter mile, he probably told, um, 
in many ways, a story that he had been envisioning in his mind for months. And he delivered it with without an error, with with no problem whatsoever. Um, you know, those are calls that most announcers hope to have w- one time in their career. And, you know, we, we talked about four out of what, 400 that would probably reach that conversation. Uh, right. Sensational. Are you critical? Uh of your of your uh, of your peers, and I, I don't mean that in an ugly way, but and you know I would imagine that most of most of them are. I mean, my friends that are that are announcers. I mean, obviously you and and uh, Frank Miramati are probably the people I'm the closest to. But um, you know, I mean, I would imagine you're critical at times, huh? Uh, you know, critical is maybe maybe that's a bit of a harsh word. I'm definitely critical toward myself. Um, I don't want to say I'm a perfectionist because I you know you give up on perfection at some point in your mid twenties when you realize it's all going to fall apart. But, uh, I'm definitely very critical on, on how my calls sound and things that I do or don't do that I like or don't like. Um, when I listen to other announcers, there's, there's a lot of taste in what we do. And, you know, some of the stuff that other announcers do, I just, I don't really care for. It doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong or bad. It's just not the style that I would prefer. You know, you might like this music, but I like that music and vice versa, sort of the same thing. Um, I definitely listen to other announcers for ideas, approaches, or different ways of doing things. Um, you know, just uh, different uh, ways of uh, describing this, that, or the other, or you know, different inflection approaches, or um, you know, or stuff that's over the top. Or I mean, give a very specific example. Um, a lot of times when the race is over, and I mentioned that winner's encore concept, you can say, you know, all rise for justify, and then immediately go into who finished second or third. And over time, listen to other announcers deliver great lines at the, the wire, but then immediately run into who finished second and third. You don't give that moment a chance to breathe. And so you sort of want to say something like, all rise for justify. And I think I added the Kentucky Derby was never in doubt. And then you just you pause for a half a second. You let that, that situation, that moment breathe. Um, that was something I picked up on listening to other big race calls where rather than allowing that situation to breathe, you immediately go into who finished second or third. And you just you don't get that opportunity for um, almost like a highlight reel. Like you can't really use that in a highlight reel now because there's no moment for them to cut the audio off. It's just one big, long sound. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, but I, I think uh, the 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 rest of the guys out there that call races right now, it's it's a strong group. Um, and there's a lot of very distinctive styles and that's refreshing to be able to tune into, you know, whatever racetrack you're tuning into and to hear a different sort of approach or style. Um, I think that's good for the, the viewer too, but uh, am I super critical? Eh, I don't know if I'd be super critical as much as, um, uh, trying to learn and, and adapt, uh, from my own, my own approach. And th- this is not a, a topic in which I'm encouraging or asking you to be critical of, of another, uh, another announcer, but, Larry this summer made the switch and I have no opinion. I could care less either way, but I'm just wanted to get your thought about it. Made a switch to, to calling out the actual fractions rather than, you know, 21.46 rather than 21 and two, How, you know, you do, you're a 21 and two guy, right? And do you find it important to call out the fractions? Cause Trevor never called the fractions. Yeah. So, um, I've thought a lot about this and, and I still do the rounded approach, so like 22 and one versus 22.45, or that'd be 22 and two, but you know what I mean? Um, just, I think it sounds better. Um, now, 
if someone really wanted to tell me that you're announcing something that's different than what's on the TV, so that's not really fair to the viewer, I could probably be convinced of it. Um, but before I did that, I'd actually go into a different approach altogether and um, start describing the pace before rattling off decimals. Um, and I only want to see decimals when I'm watching my wagering account drop low or um, go up or you know, when you're logging into the bank account when those deposits come out. Uh, <laughs> you know, other than that, I, I just don't I don't like how they sound in a race call. And I'd probably go the Trevor approach first uh, if I were to make that switch. I, if you think about it, like um, if a horse ripped through the quarter in 22 and four-fifth seconds, that just sounds better and rolls off the tongue and has a better cadence than the opening quarter was ripped in 22.45 seconds. I mean, now you just sound like a nerd. Um, and you know, Larry does it fine. Like he does a good job with it and it fits his style better than I think it would fit mine. Um, I think I would sound too much like a nerd. So, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Though. I've, I've thought about it a little bit, but, um, I'm going to stick with the rounded approach for now. So we haven't, you know, we talked about Durkin obviously, and, and, and he's, uh, I think pretty much everyone's it's, it's the, uh, it's not quite the Tupac and Biggie comparison. I think it's more of the LeBron and Michael Jordan comparison between, uh, Tom Durkin and, um, Trevor Denman. What, what, what was, I mean, Trevor's voice obviously and his accent was so unique and so engaging. And he had those, man, the, the two or three things, like his two or three punchlines that he would pop out on you when a horse started opening up by eight, you just say like, come on, give it to me, Trevor, give it to me, Trevor, give it to me, Trevor. And they would need to sprout wings, you know? And what, what was it about Trevor's delivery from a race calling standpoint, from a technical standpoint that you feel like kind of separated him uh, as a race caller. Well, everybody goes back to his ability to, to spot whether or not a horse is comfortable, whether or not the horse is traveling well or, or things are going well enough for that horse to win. I think that's one thing. But to me, Trevor's voice and his cadence and his delivery was just so pleasing. It was smooth and it just all flowed together. Um, you just felt like you were almost listening to a song um, and not a report, if you will. Um, and I think that's what allowed him to become one of the best ever as well. And then, you know, some of those other, his like catchphrases were great, like uh, jumped in at the quarter pole or out here moving like a winner. Um, I mean, what great ways to describe horse races because they, they, they do capture that moment very well. But to me, it was more about his, I don't want to say sing songy because that makes it sound like he's singing a song. That's not what I mean, but it, it was sort of that flow or that sound. And yeah, and was, how, there was like a melodic sense to his. Yeah. Calls. Yeah. There was a rhythm without it yeah. being a rhythm, you know, it was just smooth. It was just pleasing to the ear. And, um, and I think the, the style of racing in California fit that very well too, a, a speed oriented type of circuit. And I think that fit his style very well. I know that uh, a couple. I don't remember when it was. Maybe it was a couple of years ago. But you and Nick had the opportunity of of hanging out with Trevor and and uh, and there's some pretty funny stories that came out of that. But uh, one of my favorites is when when Trevor asked you what it was like to call the Derby. Yes. So <laughs> we went out to Del Mar. Um, Nick had come up to Saratoga for a typical trip up just for the summer. A bunch of us were hanging out, and then uh, Little Red Feather had done this uh, promo that they were going to allow a group of amateur announcers to come in and sort of submit a demo tape and get critiqued by us and then call one of the races at Del Mar. And Paul Espinosa is a good friend of mine now, actually won that contest. But so out to Del Mar I go. Nick and uh, I are across the aisle from each other on the Southwest flight. 
and uh, it was early. It was like five in the morning. And, you know, the night before was a Saratoga night. So I think you can put the connected dots there. And um, I'd never been to Del Mar and it was just awesome. I mean, you have this great weekend of racing and do you part of this contest, this event and uh, Gary and the Little Red Feather crew were just so welcoming, just, just a great group of people. And he orchestrated um, some drinks with Trevor after the races on the Friday that we arrived. And Trevor was a little bit late. I think we got there early, to be honest. And so we had a couple of rounds of beers while waiting for him. And then he shows up and he he said, I got to catch up. So, you know, we're all drinking, having a great time and laughing. And he's like, you know, uh, so tell me about your uh, what Churchill Downs is like. Tell me about your first derby and, and you know, just all sorts of random questions and and. There's the four of us, Gary, Trevor, Nick, and I. And so then we somehow got back to the Derby and Trevor goes, so Travis, tell me, what's it like to call the Kentucky Derby? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's nerve wracking, exciting and thrilling. You know, luckily this year I had uh, Nick there with me and he goes, who's Nick? <laughs> the, guy, the guy sitting next to him for the last hour and a half, <laughs> which, which, is, which is very funny. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's unbelievable. I remember I did a, like uh, between race announcements for the Breeders' Cup one year at St. Denis. I had to go into his booth to introduce a Zenyatta highlight video. And uh, I was in there for a good 20 minutes and I sort of felt bad because it's a big day and, you know, he's trying to call these races. And uh, I think in those 20 minutes, he borderline convinced me to become a vegan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> always adventurous when you have conversations with Trevor. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Now, that, that I actually remember that Breeders' Cup. That was fun. That was uh, when Nick got fourth in the Breeders' Cup betting challenge. Yeah, Byron's year, right? I think Byron. Yeah. Or yeah, some might some might say it wasn't Byron's year, but yeah, same idea. Either that or the uh, the Mucho Macho Man year, one or the other. I can't remember. I, I don't recall. Well, it was Byron. That was actually the first time I think I ever saw you. I, I knew you. I knew of you as a uh, which is it's actually a great Twitter avatar that you still have that that caricature of yourself. That's what that's how that's, I knew you of that. Oh yeah. Um, uh, and so, and funny enough, I don't think I've ever. I don't, we've never talked about this before. Do you remember? And you probably don't. Do you remember? Before we met each other, when you were announcing at Monmouth, I texted you one time and asked you about the turf. I, and I tweeted you, I DM'd you or tweeted you about the turf. And knowing you now, <laughs> I would have never have done that. <laughs> knowing the smart ass response I probably could have gotten, but you didn't. You were you I think you were fair. I don't remember that at all. I do remember Monmouth for oh, I had a great summer. That was a great time. Uh too bad we didn't know each other and you could have come up and enjoyed a some racing there but that was dude a, i love that place it's oh, so it's, much fun i mean you open the, the the booth is quite a bit before the finish uh which is fine you get used to that but you open up the windows and you can literally see the atlantic ocean from the booth i mean you have to look a little bit but it's there and and then you've got this summer breeze that blows through the booth and you hear this crowd there was always a crowd there um and that was a cool part of it i i, I really had a great time that summer at monmouth and byron oh, had haskell beat on top of i think yeah Oh man, I love that place. It's so much. My favorite thing to do. Um, the first time I went was after uh, Robert, my buddy, my my best friend Robert and I went up to our first Belmont, and it was the Belmont where uh, Drosselmeyer won and Champagne Dora won the Acorn, and that was like my first big score. We hit the pick four that day. I was I was broke, and I borrowed the hundred, and I had lost all my money, and I had bet on Champagne Dora. I think she was in the first leg. I think. 
she was in the first leg of the pick four. So I had bet all my money on her and like tries and all this other stuff. And I wanted to bet the pick four. And so I, I asked Robert to let me borrow the 200 bucks. I bet the pick four hit for 84,000. The next day, we were staying in the city in New York and we took the uh, the C streak, which is like one of the things I recommend to people all the time. We took the C streak, which is like this ferry that leaves from like uh, Wall Street and it goes down to um, – I don't remember what city it goes to in, in New Jersey, but it's like a 10-minute Uber from the C streak thing to Monmouth. And it's so much fun. It's like a – I don't know. I guess like an hour, maybe 45-minute uh, – boat ride but it's cool because you go under the verrazano you go by the statue of liberty and then you go right down there you go to the track it's great and then you can you can take the sea streak right back and it drops you right back off in the city so i mean i love going down to monmouth it was one of my favorite yeah i had a, I had a great time there that you're calling races at meadowlands too as part of that was cool Meadowlands, that new facility is awesome um so i had fun there i was it was it was awesome to to just be a part of it i mean i remember my parents came down we had dinner on the shore uh, it's, that's a cool spot. It gets mom. That's one of those places that I hope is around forever. Cause it's, it's good for the game. So you have been, you know, you've been a lot of places, you, you know, you were in New York for a while. You've got intimate relationships with racetrack operators, operators in Naira. You were part of the, the thing that went down at Louisiana Downs. You were, you know, at Churchill and obviously relationship with Darren Rogers and, and the, and the powers that be at Churchill and Monmouth and, uh, a significant better. Where do you feel like our game is? Where do you feel like things could be changed? You know, one of the, it's kind of a corny question, but if you were the, the SAR, what would you change? What would you adjust? Where, where do we need to kind of wake up? Where are we doing things right? What are your, just whatever you want to go with this in terms of the state of the game, the future of the game. Yeah, it's a loaded question. Cause there's a lot. I think there are two areas of focus that, that horse racing just needs to constantly look at. And one is the horse and taking care of the horse. And number two is taking care of the gambler. Um, if you take care of those two things, I think the game can be around for a very long time. Uh, it goes without saying you have to take care of the horse. A, because pressures from outside of our sphere are very real and they're mounting. And if we don't do that, then they will eventually overcome us and we will succumb to their motivations. So I think to take whatever, whatever it takes to take care of the horse. And I think that's a pretty simple question. I think you just have to ask yourself, every decision that you make, is this the right thing for the horse? And that that's on all levels, from racetrack management down to those that fool them and breed them. Is this the right thing to do for the horse? And if the answer is no, then you just it can't be done, right? So I think that's one thing. And I know, I know a lot of trainers become friendly with many of them. Um, I get that that's a very competitive space, and they're all working for the same dollar, right? They all want to compete for the same dollar that that's in the ecosystem. But you you have to you just have to do what's right for the horse, and and hopefully that a lot of decisions and, and things that are in the works um, are going to go down that path. But then you also need to take care of the gambler. And and I've always scoffed a little bit at the stigma that the horse player um that horse player gets from the general population. I don't know very many horse players that aren't smart people. And I don't and I'm not saying that to 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 brag or what have you, but you're in the same boat. All of our friends that that play the races are smart individuals. It takes a decent amount of intellect to decipher a horse race. Um, it takes a large amount of thought to weave through the data 
and the storylines and the intentions. It takes intelligence to watch a replay and to understand if a horse is traveling well or traveling or, or traveling poorly or when, when was a trip work, when did it work against a horse? When did it help a horse? I know very few horse players that I would um, not consider to be intelligent individuals. And so eventually the smart people will run away if they're not taken care of in the right way. And that's very scary because if there's nothing to bet on, there's no horse racing. Yeah, I mean, you could probably have, you know, a, a polo club type approach where a group of, of friends race their horses in a field. But that sounds a lot more boring than what we have congregating every August at Saratoga, every May at Churchill, you know, every fall at the Breeders' Cup, right? It, that's a lot more fun than just club horse racing. And so if we take care of the horse and we take care of the horse player, everything else should take care of itself as long as, you know, those two things are are adhered to. Am I bullish on the game? I'm always bullish on the game because I have been convinced throughout my life how much fun this sport is. Um, I've been convinced that there's, there's no greater moments like we talked about, like when they're approaching the gate for the Kentucky Derby or the, the few seconds that, that, you know, the world seems to hang when noses are going up and down in a photo finish of a big horse race, or even if it's just a random Thursday afternoon, but you're alive for a lot of money. Like it, it's, it's everything to you, those few moments. Um, so I've been, I'm more than convinced that this is truly the greatest game out there. Um, if we just take care of those two things, I think the rest will follow suit. And then just hopefully people are thinking that way. And, uh, I'd like to see the stigma around horse players go away. Um, there's, there's, it's, it's not hard either. I mean, there's a lot of easy things that this game could do to knock off some of these check boxes that, that do both. And, uh, hopefully there's some momentum behind it and, and those things start to come around. Why do you think there's a disconnect between racetrack operator and gambler? To me, that's the biggest misfire in the game. I feel like own, well, I guess maybe gambler owner. I think a lot of owners get it. Um, at least the intelligent ones understand the relationship between the gambler and their business because the gambler is fueling their purses. But it feels like the racetrack operator and the gambler seems to be the biggest trick. Do you, do you agree? And why do you feel that happens to be the case? It does go both ways. And there are things that just grind my gears we should not have races going off on top of each other in horse racing. I, I get it. It's going to happen. There are delays. As you know, I, I manage post times at losing the downs. Sometimes a horse flips out in the gate and needs to be scratched and it's at a delay and you're inevitably going to back up into another big track. But it does seem in today's game that there are efforts to not do that. And that's very frustrating. And, you know, that sort of goes back to the the thing I was saying before is you're, you're not taking the gambler, taking care of the gambler at that point. Right. So I think it goes both ways. I think I wish horse players sometimes realized it's not as easy as it sounds to, you know, make the changes they want to make. There's a lot of hoops you have to go through, whether it be at the state level, the local level, the national level, you know, you have to negotiate with horsemen or TV contract. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that, that become a part of that conversation, but I get it from a horse player perspective that they get frustrated when you look up and there's two races going off at the same time and there's three tracks running today. And oh, by the way, the other one doesn't start till seven o'clock tonight. That's, I mean, that's for lack of a better word, it's insulting. I think I wish that, I wish that horse players and racetracks would 
educate themselves more on their counterparts, which I don't think they do. I think we all jump to conclusions, but I think racetrack operators jump to conclusions about the seemingly successful impact of the jackpot wagers. I think that horse players jump to conclusions about why racetracks do certain things that they do. And, and I, you know, uh, holding MTOs at the last second and scratching 20 minutes before post. Like, seemingly it's annoying, but understand why they're trying to do it. They're trying their hardest to not have to do that. It hurts their bottom line. It hurts their horsemen. It hurts their purses. It hurts their field size, and it becomes a less bettable product for us. So they're trying as hard as they can. Yes, it's annoying. Shouldn't wait till 20 minutes, but the intent, usually when things are annoying, aggravating, or upsetting to me, I try to understand the intent. Sometimes it makes it easier for me to digest. I wish that the racetracks would under, would, would try to understand us more. And I think your point that we all kind of, you know, not all of us, but that the horse player in general just kind of gets pushed off at times as being just like some like, you know, not intelligent, degenerate um I think that a lot of times the decisions that are made kind of reflect that to a certain extent. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I The first line you said about educating each other a little bit more or just sharing the mindset, I think could go a long way in a non-abrasive and confrontational way. Well, something that's about to start to happen that I think we're all excited about, including you, is, uh, is Churchill's about to get rocking and rolling. So we'll we'll kind of wrap up this conversation with my excitement, and I'm assuming yours as well. Uh, obviously yours not from a betting standpoint, but mine from a betting standpoint. I feel like Churchill um, in the next, whatever, 60 days is about to be an absolute war of a meet and a great opportunity for horse players. Phenomenal racing, exciting things going on. You're going to have all the the regular characters at Churchill. You're going to have the the Corey Lanneries and the Ricardos, and then you're going to have the, the Johnnies, the Javier's, the Joel's, the Ortiz's. Uh, you're going to have the Chad Browns. You're going to, I mean, it's, I, I feel like this is going to be an, an unbelievable meet. I'd imagine you're pretty excited about it. Uh, absolutely thrilled. Excited to get back, if nothing else, than to have some normalcy or routine that doesn't involve getting up and just, you know, puttering around the house all day long. Um, someplace to go is always a good thing from a health standpoint, but from a racing standpoint, this is going to be, it's going to be awesome. I mean, they're all here and, uh, the racing has just totally hit another level in Kentucky as of late. Um, it's truly a state poised to do big things in the future. And um, and I think this this meet's going to be a microcosm of that. And and the other thing is like that, that there's a lot of cool things coming around too. I mean, they're doing more in the TV broadcast department. Um, I think there's a graphics package upgrade looming. So I think they're, you know, they're trying to advance some some things around those areas. Um, and the familiarity with Churchill Downs for horse players just makes the the gambling aspect of it that much more appealing. And when you add some familiar names and uh, and a good presentation and and hopefully some good photo finishes, it does, it does make for a, a fun time. And and uh, I, I I know by the end of this meet, I have a feeling I'm going to be exhausted with uh, calling big fields because it seems like with with very few other options, uh, the entry box should be nothing short of uh, robust. Right. I mean, you got to think that the, 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 if, if this is going to be a, to me, it's going to be a souped up Oaklawn, right? And I thought Oaklawn did a phenomenal job taking advantage of, of, of the scenario we were unfortunately dealt. And they, 
they did it with dirt racing and three distances, right? Um, Churchill obviously is going to be able to, to accommodate a, a number of distances. They're going to have two-year-olds. They're going to have turf. They're going to have uh, short and long. They're going to have a lot of different things. The one-turn mile, obviously, is is another part of it that's interesting. And and then you're going to have the historic Twin Spires in the background, which also makes it uh, an attractive situation. So, I mean, I, I think it's going to be a phenomenal meet. And and uh, I know we're excited at, uh, at Naira and Fox to be covering. Um, Saturday and Sunday will be our first days doing it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, being back with the team, I, I wish I was there. I enjoyed last last spring getting getting a little extra T stone time when I was hanging out there and getting able to sneak up to hang out for a race or two in between. And um, so I'm I'm gonna miss that, but uh, but you know I'm looking forward to it. You know, and hopefully better things are are upon us. Feels like we've turned a corner, and and hopefully some good horse racing at Churchill Downs reminds people of better days in the past and gives them something to look forward to about better days in the head. It's gonna be a fun meet, and uh, it'll be a good time. I also want to say, um, you know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people like to poke at at different organizations for their things, and we poke at Stronic, we poke at Churchill, we park, we poke at Naira, we poke at anyone who does something that we don't agree with or like or understand but i will say one thing i'm i'm very thankful for and if you don't mind passing it along i mean i'll you know obviously i'll see darren at some point and tell him as well but uh i'm very proud that governor Bashir came out and said that of all of the the packages that he received of plans for reopening that churchill downs was one of the best and i think that's a great sign for us as like an industry in racing that we can do something that we're proud of that makes sense that that doesn't have our you know it, it's just it's it's something that like uh you know makes us look better as an industry so you know i want to commend uh churchill downs and the people at cdi for putting that together man i mean that that makes us look like we got our thing you know like we got it together here so it's a good thing yeah i mean i i mean i spend most of the day six floors above everybody else um, and often I'm just alone for a while, but I did have a little bit of insight into that plan and, and all the other safety plans that they've been working on for the past couple of years. And there's, there's one thing that Churchill is it's thorough and and they're deep and they have looked at every angle and have, have really put a, a plan in place that is robust and hopefully safe for everybody. And you're right when, when the governor recognizes that that's a good thing for everybody in the game. So, and I, I would say that even if they didn't sign my paycheck, <laughs> No, I, I, of course. Um, T dollar. I appreciate it, man. I, it's, it's been fun. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I love, you know, I'm, I'm a, I love the race calls. I love race callers. And so like the, getting that inside scoop, I'm hoping people will appreciate that. I've been fortunate enough to hear some of these stories, not all of them. Um, but some of them along the way. And I appreciate you, uh, hopping on to share those stories with us. No, you got it. It was fun. Good time as always. And hope to see you soon. Yeah. Seeing you uh, can't come soon enough, but I will hear you very, very quickly in my little IFB ear device uh, this Saturday when Churchill Downs opens and we'll get to hear the voice of the Kentucky Derby, Travis Stone. I'm looking forward to it, man. I'm looking forward to the meet. I'm looking forward to hearing your race calls. I'm looking forward to uh, getting back down to Vince Young Steakhouse and talking about and watching this sport that we all love. It's going to be fun. We'll be on Saturday and Sunday. I'm not sure the exact times. I, I, it might be a full card thing. I, I mean, I'm there. I could look at my schedule right now, but that would require me to pull up my email. 
I, I don't know. I think I'm on late on Saturday. It doesn't matter. Look, we'll be on Fox Sports. Check us out. Uh, FS1, FS2, a little back and forth. Tell your friends. Tweet about it. Text it. Um, it's a long episode. So, and I talked for like four minutes at the beginning, so I won't talk too much now. Subscribe, retweet, tweet, tag, all that stuff is good, man. It's it's good to let people uh, get to hear our guests. I'm always really proud when these shows are over that I haven't talked very much. Majority of the, the conversation is from our guests. And so uh, uh, I don't even feel like I'm tooting my own horn. I'm, I'm telling you to listen to these stories and, and this insight from from our friends that we've been fortunate enough to have join. So is there anything else important? Um, no, I'm going to play Madden. Um, I want to say thank you to, uh, to all of you for listening. I want to say, say thank you to, uh, Drew Coatney, our business manager. If you have any questions or comments, tell Drew, if you don't like the show, tell Drew. Um, I want to thank the other, uh, participants and the other uh, contributors to the net contributors ooh, to the network. I want to thank Matt Bernier, uh, Naomi Tucker, Spencer, whose last name I cannot say. And I refuse to say, because I can't figure it out. Uh, I guess I have to thank PTF. And uh, who else? Who else? Who else? That's it. It's been real. Looking forward to next week. And uh, I hope you guys will be with us. Have a good weekend. Happy opening Churchill Downs. Hope you cash some tickets. We'll see you guys next week. I need to know everything. Who and the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'll be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk. So I'm letting them talk.